<laughs> oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> we were both in the bathroom. <laughs> I think it's ironic. <laughs> both of us. I, I didn't answer hands, you. But... I didn't answer you, and you didn't answer me because we're both on, in the bathroom. <laughs> and washing your hands for twenty seconds with antibacterial soap and. Oh, I was quite using pudding. You guys had better go do it. Oh, really? Yeah. Hey, vanilla pudding. The tapioca pearls will just scrub them so clean. Don't forget turmeric. Don't forget to ask <laughs> Alright, everybody, just rewind. We're discussing the movies of 1985. My list that I originally sent to Jacob is not the list he gave back to me. <laughs> so there's a few movies difference. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you yeah, I mean. <laughs> I don't know what happened. <laughs> Uh, I, I didn't know it was in a particular order. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so I had to yeah, rush. But... I had to rush watch Summer Rental. <laughs> it's like, shit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, let's start off with that one for sure. Okay. <laughs> I was like halfway through Spies Like Us, like, son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, okay, uh, Fletch and that are next on my list. Yes. You're, you're, uh. Your list, you're going to have to go through it since mine is different. So, uh, yeah, let's we'll start with Summer Rental. Um, is it, This is John Candy's, like, real breakout role. He We discussed, I think, some time back, um, uh, like, four movies of, of his during the 80s that, uh, good and bad. Like, his first starring role, I believe, was Going Berserk, which is a real mixed bag. Right. Overall enjoyable because yeah. of John Candy. But it was Splash that uh, brought him back into, like, studio kind of stuff. So uh, he did... I want to say he did Volunteers before Summer Rental. Am I wrong? It feels like it was there right before it. I think it might have been right before. Yeah, and then the next I'm, year... I'm leaning more did, towards that. Yeah, 86 is when he did Armed and Dangerous. And by then he was solidified as an A-lister. But Summer Rental is the one where he, he wasn't playing the wacky guy or the weirdo. Uh, this is him just as a normal, everyday dad, and it's one of his best roles, even though it got terrible reviews, and I have no idea why. Yeah, I don't either. Like, I saw that uh, on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, when watching, looking it up on Voodoo, they have a Rotten Tomatoes score next to it. I'm like, but this was such a success. I mean, Hook had terrible reviews. I'm like, what That's the true. hell? Well, yeah, there's a lot of movies that later fight an audience. I know this movie not from video or in the theaters. I know because this played on HBO all the time. And my uh, uncle, who's just a little bit older than me, had HBO. So he taped this and we watched it constantly. And I think it's a really good pairing with a movie from the next year, uh, One Crazy Summer. Oh, God, yes, definitely. Uh, and overall, a good supporting cast. Carly Green from Goonies. She, she is in this. I think it's her I first role. Like I don't, I don't recall her from anything before this. Oh, I thought. Oh, I thought this was a triple threat year. Oh, wait, no. Goonies is next, and Lucas are next year. Aren't yeah, they? yeah, next year. Uh, well, it, yeah. Hold ah. on a second. No, no, you're right. Goonies. Okay, I don't know when Summer Rental. I gotta look this up now because Goonies is 1985 as well, and she clearly was in Summer Rental first. Mm. So I'm gonna look this up. So no, it was 86 yeah. is when she did uh, Lucas, and then she did Three for the Road in 1987, and I have no idea whatever happened to her after that. Yeah, no. I mean, honestly, just seeing her in that um, commentary track of Goonies. She still looks amazing. I mean, I know like this was like from like early to mid two thousands when it was uh, premiered on the DVD. But again, she's still holding up and she still looks amazing. It would be great to see her come back in the Goonie sequel. If that, that ever we'll happens, eventually. Ever. <laughs> um, so no, this actually came out two months after the Goonies. So I don't know if it filmed before or not. 
But um, this mm. is Carl Reiner finally breaking away from Steve Martin. They had done like five movies in a row together. And all of oh, them yeah. finally saved both of their careers. And this is when he would do his summer double feature. So he did this in summer school two years later. Oh, it was him who did summer school? Yep. He's the principal at the very oh. beginning who wins the lottery. And he's like, a lot of people win lotteries and stay on their job. They're freaking morons. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is, this is crazy. Volunteers opened up the week after summer rental. Oh, okay. Oh, man, but still, uh, I just like how this movie does play out first. Um, you know, it's John Candy, you know, city guy, you know, busy every day, doesn't spend enough time with his fam, and, of course, ends up getting, after a particular incident at work, finally gets some vacation time off, decides to take, the, you know, the entire summer off and just spend time with his wife and kids, reconnect and bond, and all sorts of shenanigans uh, happen. Like, they end up, he ends up at the wrong house at first. <laughs> like when the owner... <laughs> oh man this is also oh, a good pairing with the torn. great outdoors oh i just realized that yes oh no definitely and uh rip torn oh god loved him in this god he's so, so good in this mm, yeah he does have a natural knack for comedy well I'm that like, and just down. you know the rest the rascal ish golly ah, i'm the pirate of the... <laughs> absolutely oh yeah <laughs> My favorite line of his of all time is in a TV show that saved his career, which was called The Larry Sanders Show. And there's a doofus on this show. You know the dad from Arrested Development, um, Jeffrey Tambor? Yes. Um, He was on Larry Sanders as like the Ed McMahon-style sidekick. And he Mm. decides that he's going to be younger. He's going to look younger, so he gets an earring. And it gets infected. And he thinks his ear is going to rot off. He thinks his ear is going to rot off. And um, Rip Torn's character uh, is uh, getting moved out of his job because they think he's too old. And uh, he's drunk as shit. And he's like, Hank, stop talking about your ear. I'm going to piss on your head. And, or I'm going to stomp on your head and piss in your good ear. <laughs> fucking kills him. <laughs> it's Rip Torn, I guess. Shut the fuck oh, up, that's... Hank. I'm going to step on your head and piss in your good ear. That's what he says. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. No, dude. Uh, dude, Freddy got... When he was in Freddy, got figured out. Daddy, would you like some <laughs> <laughs> my my son is a nuclear physicist, and my son can eat a chicken. <laughs> so, so oh weird. no! Weird. That's like, oh my god! I'm surprised like he did his character didn't pop a blood vessel, <laughs> but he just played it off so well. But yeah, um, again, somewhat similar plot to One Crazy Summer. Uh, John Candy like kind of bets like his rent to the landlord. Because, uh, you know, he's a rich snob and he wants to kick him out yeah. over some petty BS, like, or just appearing poor in his fancy little country club. What? Oh, God. What? I'll oh, take God. the last two um, lobsters, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> Is this the only time that Richard Crenna has been a villain? I always feel like he's like the noble hero. That's his name, yes. Richard Crenna. Yeah, I think he has. No. I, I, every other movie I'd see him in. No, I only see him as like a supporting good guy. Yeah, which is funny because he's not known for comedy and not known for being a villain, yet he works so well in this film. Oh, yes. No, I swear you just want to punch him in the face. Oh, God, at the end, <laughs> how they end up winning the race. Not only do they you know, use the sale to their best advantage, but John Candy just takes off his pants and puts <laughs> on the mask. <laughs> I do love that. <laughs> Oh, no, I forgot. The next year is when he's in The Flamingo Kid, and I think he's another snotty uh, bourgeois guy who wants to put um, 
Who wants to put uh, Matt Dillon in his place because he's a poor kid? Mm, just want to punch him in the face. The, uh, oh, the wife in this is Karen Austin, and not a lot of people know her because she was removed from Night Court after season two and replaced with Marky Post. Oh, crap. Yeah, she was good, but she just didn't have that fire, that thing that they were looking for. And it, by season three, the, the cast really clicks. And sadly, she was one of the people that was let go. No, it is a bit of a bummer. Uh, I, I'd see, I've seen something like that happen in Parks and Rec. Yeah, well, a lot uh, of shows go through fits and starts. I mean, for Pete's sake, did you know no, News Radio originally did not have Joe Rogan? That was uh, um, Ray Romano as the the technician. Oh dang! No, I never yeah. knew that. But thankfully, the next year is when he got Everbell's Raymond and became a star. And uh, yeah, it happens with a lot of shows. There was a different mm-hmm. Willow, I think, in Buffy. Oh wow, there was. I never knew that. Yeah, it's the pilot that it never aired. You can find it on the disc and on YouTube, I believe. Okay, I'll have to look it up. But yeah. Um, oh gosh, who else was in here that Joey Lawrence, baby a... Joey Lawrence. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, little Joey Lawrence was his uh, oldest son. Oh, I oh, forgot. Man. This. Uh, speaking of Night Court, John Larroquette. I always get this confused with another movie, but this is the one where he becomes, right. so, he becomes so obsessed with the contest that he's not paying attention to his family anymore, and then they start hanging around with John, uh, uh, John Larroquette. Yeah, I can't say the damn name. John Larroquette. John Larroquette. Yes. And, of course, Caroline has the hot, uh, kind of has the hots for her son, who's kind of the same way, always listening to the headphones and music. Eh, can't help it. Being a teen and just having so much catchy music around that time. Yeah. It's mm. a really likable movie. I think one of my favorite segments is when he realizes that his uh, cabin <laughs> is just being taken over. <laughs> First off, all these people, oh, it's, the yes. main, it's the main paths of the beach, so there's no peace and quiet. People are partying on his patio, they get into his house, and it's just, watching his frustration is so hilarious. Uh, to me, it just it makes him so lovable. Oh gosh, yes, it's having a banged up meme, that terrible sunburn, and yeah, all you know, the some sunburn, guys yeah. cooking omelets. I know. <laughs> and, then he's like, and, he, and I like how like one of the last few guys that leaves is the one that's still talking on the phone. Get the hell off the phone! Get the hell out of my house! <laughs> or no? Uh, and then he goes into his room. There's a guy still watching Smurfs. He's like, "You want to see what happens when Papa Smurf gets it? He decides to start uh, kicking someone's ass." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or the, no, the, is, is this a movie with the neighbor that's like, uh, "You want to check out my wife's new breast implants? What do you think of these?" Oh yes. Oh my god, yes. Yeah, that was it. It's like, she's just so insecure. Yeah. (laughs) Honey, they're great. Everybody loves them. Jesus. It's like, he's not going to be like all fumigated because, you know, someone's touching his wife's breast. He's like more annoyed with his wife. It's like, oh my god. Spend all this money. Come on. I'm tell you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, Richard Krennic. Good. Oh, sorry. No, you go ahead. No, no, I'm just, I was just rambling. Ramble on. Oh, okay. Yeah, but yeah, no, Richard Crenna, again, yeah, over the slightest thing, uh, again, he, it, the whole feud between him and John Candy, not only because he didn't like him because he was poor, but because he bumped into John Candy's boat, like, John Candy's boat had the right-of-way, but it's, oh, he's little, he's small, it's, a, he'll move out of the way, I'm like, oh, dude, <laughs> oh, God, it was just so funny just seeing him lose at the end, even yeah. the judge was like, I don't know if that move was legal, but, I love it. <laughs> but you're a dick, <laughs> so we're gonna continue. <laughs> right. What's the, what's the next movie? Oh gosh, uh, this was a classic uh, as a kid because you know we're always watching you know Pee Wee's Playhouse, 
and that's what I grew up on more than watching the actual film. Uh, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. This was uh, Tim Burton's big theatrical debut. Yeah, this is another I mean, HBO it, constant perennial. Uh, I'm never going to talk about the sequel. <laughs> it's, it's such a fuck up, in my opinion. But this first one is no. so unique. It's such a it's it's a love letter to uh, kitsch and just weird behavior, and it's the perfect film for Tim Burton to really like make his debut. Yes, he had made Frank and Weenie before this and Vincent, but this is like his big debut. Yes, and it was a sleeper hit. Like nobody expected it to be this big. It's just like oh, whatevs. But yeah, Tim Burton, Danny Elfman, and Paul Rubens just collaborate, and boom, yeah, we get pure magic. And it was filmed at Warner Brothers Studios. In fact. When I was on the tour last year, um, this little lake, I mean, it was drained, but that part where he's, like, near the end of the movie where he's swinging on the vine and doing the Tarzan yell? Yeah. Yeah, we drove right by it. I, oh, uh, man. That, that's probably my favorite sequence of the movie is that whole just chase through the thing and get to see all the different sequences. But I love right before he gets the bike, and you have young Jason Hervey, the bully brother from uh, uh, Wonder, Wonder Years. Years. And you have Miss Yvonne, I can't remember her real name, uh, who I think is... Charlie's mom on uh, Sunny in Philadelphia. Yes. Yeah. Oh God. I it is the same. Way. Way. Okay. Why is she so but um, when when they're talk, they're doing the nun scene or whatever, and he goes, "Ready, everybody?" He goes, "I was born ready. I've been ready for five minutes." Roll. <laughs> this little kid, he comes out like me and George C. Scott. <laughs> oh, yes, exactly. I know. Like. <laughs> Seriously, one of the very few kid actors who could just, like, have those kind of emotions and that attitude come yeah. naturally. <laughs> <laughs> it, the thing is, I just, it was so annoying just to how everyone catered to him. Yeah. Like, the director and all that, just because he's a big kid star. But, man, oh, oh, man. It, just overall, this movie from, um, you can tell, like, Tim Burton projected, like, some of his fears, especially with the clown sequences. Oh, like, yeah, he's yeah, terrified yeah. of clowns. And, and well, uh, like, if I remember correctly, this is on the commentary track. Is uh, there is the sequence where I think it's in the beginning where he's uh, just kind of showing the setup of his house and it has that you know the, the Tim Burton or the Danny Elfman music and the setup of it, uh, this whole Rube Goldberg thing. And um, he's like, "Well, they basically just handed me a book of available directors that I could afford." And I just went through there, and I was like, I know Tim Burton. I saw that Vincent short, so I'm going to choose him. Because all the directors they were throwing at him were very pedestrian, and he didn't care for them. And then uh, he had remembered that uh, Danny Elfman had done the music for a really obscure weirdo movie called Forbidden Forbidden Zone. And Ooh. so it's just he got them both for dirt cheap, and they had a vision that lined up with his. And it was a fun script that he and Phil Hartman, and I can't remember. The guy who played Jombie was the other writer on it. And, uh... Yes. Oh, God, I can't remember. Um, mecca like a high, mecca honey ho, everybody. Uh, yes. <laughs> mecca like a high, mecca chiny ho. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, my impression, socks in a dryer. I just, I... Uh, but it's just so annoying that this movie is so visionary and it's so much fun and it's weird. And the second one just fucking lands on his face. Was he just too busy with the show? To really take the time with the script and the, and the director because it just seems like such a flop. Possibly. It's been a long while since I've seen the movie. I couldn't. So I tried watching it last say. year. I made it 20 minutes into it and I was like, I'm out. I can't do this. I remember Benicio Del Toro being the dog dude. Yeah, in that movie. yeah. Oh, man, but some of the lines and some of the quotes that come out of Paul Rubens' mouth <laughs> are just so hilarious. <laughs> uh, 
It's like, I don't know, but the whole... Oh, yeah, E.G. Daly. She was in this as well. Love E.G. Daly. She was the Donnie. Yeah. Oh, how can you not? And she's like, she's throwing hints at Pee-wee, liking him, but he just won't go for it. He's like too shy and too scared. Yeah. uh, There's a sequence when he... uh, Right after his bike is stolen, he passes out. And I guess that she had froze during that scene because the year prior to this, her... um, boyfriend was an actor named John Eric Hexum and she was on set the day that he accidentally blew his brains out and he was laying on the ground just like that and she completely froze if do you know about this at all no I did not know about this there was a tv show when I was a kid that it's still my favorite sci-fi show it's called Voyagers um that was uh critically acclaimed had a strong fan base but just not the ratings and it was very expensive, so it got canceled after one season. And he went on to an action show called Cover Up. And he was horsing around on the set with one of the revolvers. And didn't understand, no one bothered to explain him. Safety issues weren't the same back then. And he took the prop gun and he put it up to his temple. And it shot the blank wad into his brain. Oh. Yeah, he had no oh. idea. He was horsing around he accidentally killed himself. And uh, she was on set that day and she was there on the ground... Uh, and and Pee Wee when he lands or whatever he's in the same position. And I guess she froze after that. And uh, yeah, I don't I really don't know what yeah, happened to her. Uh, she basically stopped acting. She does mostly voice work now and singing. But um, she she really is a joy in this movie. Sorry to bring everybody down, but that was. Uh, oh yeah, no, but it's a fact. I mean, behind the scenes stuff. This is what gets popped up. Yeah. But man, uh, again, just to endure that is just absolutely insane. Ugh, man. Best wishes to her, but. Mm. Yeah, this movie, I had no idea. Yeah, this movie is insanely quotable though, because there's a part where you know after that where she's like, "Oh come on, PW," and he's like, "Daddy, I'm a loner. I'm a rebel." <laughs> I do a terrible. Oh movie. yeah, yeah yeah. <laughs> oh no, and then uh, later on, <laughs> that that line kind of recurs later on in the movie. Oh uh, right, right. When he's the, with that the, the other. The other movie, the the life of PW, is so fucking. James funny. Brolin, yeah, <laughs> James Brolin says that. Yeah. Oh no, I like the part where it's like uh, he uh, almost crashes uh, when he's with the uh, the escaped convict, and then <laughs> and then like uh, the escaped convict kicks him out and drives off. He's like, "You don't want to be mess mess around with me, man. I'm a loner, a rebel." Deja <laughs> vu. <laughs> oh right. no, large Marge. Yeah, oh, the large march. You could totally crap. Tell a large march. <laughs> ah! Oh no! I like when he confronts uh, Francis and he goes to his house. I'm here to see Francis. He's taking a bath. <laughs> oh really? Where are they hosing him down? <laughs> <laughs> I still remember the trailer from this. The trailer from this was oh. so strange because, and, we, and everybody my age was like into it because it was so unique, but. Just that sequence where he is, screws up his bike and goes, I meant to do that, huh? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I remember that. He's trying to, he's seen people all the tricks. Or the like, dance. Do, the, 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 to me, I didn't realize that was like a dance the dance. Tequila to me, dance. Oh, when my you're God. age, you think that he's just poking. He's like, my pee pee, my butt butt, my pee pee, my butt butt. And you're like, that's the dirtiest dance I've ever seen in my life. Oh, my God. But it was just so silly and adorable and so iconic, especially with those freaking platform shoes. Oh, oh. Yes. You know that female biker with the orange hair? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That's Elvira. Uh-huh. Cassandra Peterson. Uh, by the way, the guy who played Jompy, um, he co-wrote the Elvira Mistress of the Dark script. 
Oh, wow. That's Sadly, awesome. that movie didn't connect the same way that Pee-wee did. It's so strange. you think that they had the same audience. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, especially like for those of like horror, like of the horror genre or who appreciated Elvira before. Yeah, yeah. Kitschy weirdness. However. Huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, but still, like this movie was definitely what got people introduced to Tim Burton. And just, again, the way he directed it, like all the idea, like how it all panned out was again something fresh and something new and gave us so many more uh, so many more films to come I mean after this it was Beetlejuice I believe yep like three years later well he did and the family course, dog cartoon for amazing stories I think a couple years prior to this that's right because he yeah because he worked for Disney yeah for a long while and well that wasn't for Disney that was for Universal Steven Spielberg um, mm. but him and Brad Bird teamed up to do that one Oh, wow. Well, I mean, they're both... Well, of course, this didn't start out in the animation. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But uh, just think oh, about God. how he sets up sequences and, and the, the way the music plays so well off of it. If you listen to... I think the very first single from Oingo Boingo is called uh, Nasty Habits. And it you can hear... You listen to the beginning of Nasty Habits and you hear where he was going with the Pee-wee's Big Adventure because it starts off like... You know that kind of, and you see that in the very beginning sequence of, or during the nightmare when when the elephants and and the the clowns and stuff like that. Yeah. Wait, is there elephants? Did I just confuse this with Dumbo? Dinosaur, dinosaur. Yeah, so like that. But I love the whole Alamo sequence. Uh, where's the basement? <laughs> She's like, there's no basement at the Alamo, silly. <laughs> and they're all laughing their ass off at him. He's like, I gotta go. <laughs> he just felt so embarrassed. Oh, yeah, she was on Saturday Night Live. Yes. Oh, I can't remember her name. The stars. I can't remember her name. Uh, it's Jan Hooks. Yes. And she yeah, showed overall... up later in uh, Batman Returns. Oh, that's right, she did. She was uh, one of... Um... The image consultants for yeah, uh, yeah. Christopher Walken. Nope. Oh, yeah, yeah. The uh, Penguin is uh, the one who, like, falls for her or something like that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but I think my yeah, all-time um, favorite line from this, and I've done it over the intercom at work, and I can't believe I never got in trouble, was... Beijing, Mr. Herman. Beijing, Mr. Herman. Bullet call for Mr. Herman. Herman. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. They dubbed his voice. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Just an overall enjoyable, lovable movie. Yeah. It's unforgettable and it's what you know really kicked off tim burton's career well i think it also gave Ernest the chance and elvira that this kind of quirky world that uh was just around the corner of like uh obscure mascot kind of people i feel like there was a couple others like that around mm. the time but i think it really opened the door to uh you know like the, the b-52s having resurgence just the, the kitschy weirdness the pop culture i mean think about what he brought to other movies like uh um, uh, I can't damn it. Edward Scissorhands and Be Able to Juice, and he produced Cabin Boy, which has a lot of that flavor. Ed Wood, all of this stuff from Pee Wee is moved over into that. Oh God, yes, absolutely. Now that you think about it, hmm. But yes, next uh, on the list. Yes. I'm tr- okay, so for me, this is what made for me solidified. Val Kilmer as a comedic genius. Yes. And also, the scientific aspect of it was just so unique. And, of course, Peck from Ghostbusters, whose real name I can never remember. This man has uh, no penis. Oh, uh, no, his real name is William Atherton. 
William Atherton, yes. William Atherton, oh god, just absolutely can't help it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's like, yes, sir, it's true. This man has no dick. But yes, real genius. Oh man, this was one of my favorite movies growing up, especially oh, okay. like around middle school. You know, rewatching it again, and it what made me—it's what made me fall in love with Tears of Fears. Uh, everybody wants. Yeah, it's—it's uh, it's, it didn't rule do the well, world. It did better than Top Secret, but it, it still wasn't a big hit. Here's the weirdest fucking thing: I did not know this until recently. Uh, Weird Science, My Science Project, and Real Genius all came out in August of 1985, and they basically cannibalized each other. Oh, damn it! Of course, of course, it wasn't. That's the reason why. Again, just like with Top Secret, it came out the same weekend as Ghostbusters and another big yeah, hit. Just mind-boggling, but they would be discovering ah. video. But Real Genius is the one that instantly became a hit. The minute it hit video and HBO, uh, we rented it, I remember, and I just remember it was one of the, another one of those like it constantly playing on HBO, and that's where it built yes. its audience. And um, Ken Reed, uh, a friend of mine who I do the podcast with sometimes, uh, this is his favorite movie of all time. And, and understandably so. It takes the the inkling of what Revenge of the Nerds was trying to offer, taking out all the uncomfortable moments, and actually define the cliches. Because Val Kilmer is a genius, but he's also funny as hell, very likable, good looking. He was the antithesis of that cliche. Yes. Oh my god, yeah. He was just rolled up into a big ball of fun. Especially the ice skating sequence. It's like, as soon as Mitch... Uh character Mitch comes out yeah this is the only movie this actor's ever done isn't it mm, no he is in uh damn it oh Karate Kid 3 I know this he is in Karate Kid 3 where Ralph Macchio gets kind of aggressive and he's dancing with his girl and he punches him in the face but I don't know what else he's been in because he is more of a musician mm, okay but yeah no I, he was really good in this film I appreciated him I think the way this uh, yeah, that I, that opening ice skating sequence, I felt like Val Kilmer just improvised most of that. It was just so beautifully done. It just flowed naturally. Oh, man. Wow, he's actually been in a <laughs> lot of big movies, just smaller parts. It looks like he's very selective. If, if you have a backup of a music career, I guess you can do that. So these are the movies that he's been in that are kind of big. Let me go all the way back. Da, 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 da. So it started off with Real Genius. Then he did a bunch of TV, like 21 Jump Street in the Bronx Zoo, Freddy's Nightmares, L.A. Law. He did Karate uh. Kid 3. Then he took a long break and did, uh, did Apollo 13, The American President. Uh, was in West Wing, Party of Five. He was in Poseidon. That's the one with uh, Kurt Russell. Rumor has it with Kevin Costner. Um, wow. Some independent movies, but for the most part, he's very selective. Hmm. Uh, as you mentioned, yeah, him being a musician, he can be. Uh, but, yeah, seriously, I think what this also does kind of have a commentary on is the college experience, especially for, like, you know, he's not he's not even finished with high school yet. He was only, like, 15, Right, uh, Mitch. And then, of course, as he's going to classes, like, he's constantly taking notes, writing, going from here to there. Like, little to no time for anything else except work. Oh, yeah, and then that's the side project that um, William Atherton's character wants him working on. He wants him working on that laser because of his, uh, because of his, uh, oh, gosh. Government contract, which is under the radar and no one's talking about, and it's actually illegal what he's doing because he's funneling cash around, and uh, none of the kids know this, which is truly heinous, and he's pushing them, pushing them, pushing them, pushing them like nobody's business. So the point of... Uh, Val Kilmer's character and uh, Michelle May- Mayrink is f- 
phenomenal in this. She is yes. so lovable, so much fun. But um, they're trying to bring him back into a normal world where they can he can just be a kid again and enjoy life. Um, by the way, all-star of teen movies of the 80s, uh, Michelle Merrick. Uh, she was in The Outsiders, Valley Girl, Revenge of the Nerds, Joy of Sex, Real Genius, and then uh, just kind of faded away. She was also, in, I believe she was also in a Permanent Record with Keanu Reeves. You've seen that. I was going to bring that up, but I didn't think you had ever even heard of that. That's a good one. That's a depressing uh, one, but yeah. That was her final film. Yeah. Yes, of course, yes. It's a, Like I said, I thought it was a great drama and a, a very necessary yeah. She, she's in a movie watch. that I never was able to catch, but uh, we had her on VHS for a brief moment. It was called "Nice Girls Don't Explode," where she has a, she has spontaneous combustion powers. <laughs> every time she gets <laughs> every time she gets horny, I think is when stuff will just start blowing up. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel I feel like that's what gave birth to a, a particular Marvel villain. Oh man, the, the one who caused the Civil War incident, the one who blew up. Oh in that right, small right, town. Speedball. The speedball? No, not speedball. Oh, that was no. The no, Warriors no, was, were chasing him. Right, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. But um, yeah. Robert Prescott in the previous year had been the villain in uh, Bachelor Party. Bachelor and Party. How old was he when he made this? He's supposed to be like twenty-two, but he looks like he's thirty. But he, uh, the writers of Real Genius, are the writers of Bachelor Party. Oh, oh. So they must have just said, "Hey, look at this guy. He's a really good tool." <laughs> It's like you just want to punch him in the face. Oh, God, I love how they get revenge on him. <laughs> Freaking, they uh, take his car and they put it in his apartment. Yes, they but can't. I think it's funnier when they That's put the car. thing in his uh, his braces. Uh, Kent, you've been touching yourself. <laughs> no, I haven't. Yes, you have. I've seen everything. <laughs> this is Jesus and you've been a very naughty boy. <laughs> I love it when, when he's in his house, in uh, Jerry Hathaway's house, and he's just like, All right, God, give it to me! <laughs> the sun comes Come through. <laughs> Hate, hate, oh my god! I Jerry's so high strung. He hates everything. He hates his students. He hates any of his faculty. He hates uh, popcorn. He hates dogs. He hates children. Yes. <laughs> it's just awful. Oh god, yes. Oh no! It's like you guys are laboring. You're supposed to be laboring. This is what you got for not having an education. Uptight, snooty, <laughs> Such a you know, egotistical genius. Oh, There's... but I like. I I, I I thought it was pretty funny how he was with Mitch's parents. It's like, is Mitch by chance for... Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> oh, my God. No. There's a, there's a the cameo in this. Oh, God, I can't remember her name, but she was Valley Girl. Uh, Deborah Foreman. Deborah Foreman. She was in Valley Girl and Waxworks oh, and stuff like wow. that. But she's in this for a brief moment as... Uh, um, uh, the daughter of Jerry, or is the girlfriend of Jerry, whatever, and he's like, Oh, uh, she goes, No, the, he was a, uh, oh god, I can't remember his name, but I've seen him in a bunch of movies. Uh, ball guy, he was one of the government contractors. Okay. Um, his daughter was the one, well, Crystal flirted with her first, you know, and then, um, he ends up going to, well, once he, once, uh, Val Kilmer's character figures out the, uh, laser prop, the, uh, the, uh, laser mechanics, he goes to Jerry's house. And then, of course, Jerry ends up banging her. <laughs> but he, and then, but he, wasn't she like, uh, oh, can you uh, hammer a nail in with your penis? <laughs> the two-inch two yeah. your penis? <laughs> He's like, not at the moment. <laughs> She's like, a girl's got to have her standards. Like, <laughs> but the director of this is also the director of Valley Girl. No one ever talks about, um, oh, look what just happened. Uh, fuck. Uh, Coolidge, Martha Coolidge. No one ever talks about Martha Coolidge, and she is a truly great director. 
And whenever they bring up female directors, they always seem to ignore her, and I have no idea why. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I mean, especially with comedic directors. Amy Heckerling. Yeah, you know, Amy Heckerling doesn't get her credit either, yeah. It's just not fair. Yeah, well, oh, especially Amy Heckling, the... though Amy Heckling basically stayed in the mainstream, whereas Martha Coolidge was interested in a lot of like independent ideas. So, um, mm. so she started off with Valley Girl, then she did The Joy of Sex, Real Genius, a really great uh, a lost movie called Plain Clothes, where a guy goes undercover in high school to try to bust uh, drug dealers. Um, mm. Did a bunch of episodes in the new Twilight Zone. She did uh, Rambling Rose, which got a lot of acclaim. Lost in Yonkers is fantastic. Angie, Out to Sea, Three Wishes. So she she just stuff that just didn't connect. Prince in me, of course. But I think she's a truly fantastic director. But Real Genius is truly her. Uh, I know everybody loves Valley Girl. But man, Real Genius for me is just it. Absolutely. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, and I like how this was like a... Yeah, as we were mentioning before regarding Mitch... Like the whole college experience, you know, how it was like kind of declining into this all work and absolutely no play, yeah, you know, kind of uh, commentary. Well, and, also he was made yeah. fun of for being younger, and he was getting a lot of shit. Exactly, I know. It's like when he has that breakdown after after just blowing off some steam, you know, Jerry, you know, when uh, Kent and Jerry just come in and crash the party, and then uh, you know, Mitch just goes off and just has a breakdown. Yeah. He just calls his parents and he wants to go back. And they fucking And then Kent, it. that Jesus. prick. Yeah. I know. Getting even with... Yeah, thankfully... Well, yeah, I know. Then, of course, Chris Nice mentions uh, Laszlo, played by... Thank you. I was going to wonder if you were bringing that up or I was going to have to. He is the MVP of this. He's barely in it, but he yeah. is so crucial to the script because... Without him, you really don't see why Chris Knight is so laid back because he watched how he exploded and it never came back, really. And he's trying to save Mitch from becoming like Laszlo. Exactly. And, but, yes, Laszlo himself, he was, like, the smartest guy there. Like, right after he meets Mitch, um, Mitch just leaves out of the room and then then, uh, Laszlo tells uh, Chris Knight, he's like, he'll grow four inches within the next year. <laughs> oh my God. He can predict that. <laughs> Just from now, looking at him. Now, do you recognize Jonathan Grease who plays Laszlo? Yes, of course. Uh, I recognize him from Fright Night 2, uh, Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite, and there was another movie he had done. My, my thing is Monster Squad. He, he's a werewolf twice. He was yes, a fri- the werewolf a Monster and, Squad. Yeah, yeah. Somebody lock me up! <laughs> Yes. Oh my goodness. Seriously, he does give so much effort, uh, great effort, uh, no, and no matter what movie he's in. Yeah. No oh, yeah, and he was also in he Lost. Was, he was in the first few seasons of Martin. Oh, wow. He worked at the radio station that Martin worked at, but no one ever remembers that because I think in season three he was gone. He went over to a TV show mm. called The Profiler. Wow. Yeah, and he was also in Lost. He played uh, oh, Ben's father. Okay, I, I never yes. really, I don't really remember anything from Lost. It's so strange, just being wildly disappointed and never finishing it. <laughs> mm, dang, I'm surprised. I mean, everything was good up until the ending. Yeah, the ending. I mean, I've seen worse endings. Well, actually, no, no. <laughs> We're not sure. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yes, this uh, definitely is a must-watch for me almost every summer. And again, just all-around great cast, great, very fun plot, very smart, witty humor. And even for uh, Val Kilmer's character, like, he did knuckle down to, like, you know, just sh- to show William Atherton that he could still do it. He's still smart. And, of course, he solved the uh, problem. He 
figured out, you know, how to make the laser more effective. Yeah, speaking of, when that laser goes through everything, I, I kept expecting someone to be standing there going, my stomach's really hot, oh shit. <laughs> Here's just a guy standing on a balcony with a big hole in his chest. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Seriously. Yeah, it's just overall just a great movie, and yeah. I love it. Yeah. What's our next film? Okay. So we've discussed Chibi's Big Adventure, Summer Rental, Little Genius. Um, oh, Brewster's Millions. Oh. This I remember watching briefly as a kid, yeah. but as an adult, I appreciate it so much oh, more, yeah. and I absolutely love every second. Could not tell it was a Walter Hill film. Yeah, I know. It's so but, strange. Man. I taped this when I was a kid off of Fox, and I watched it over and over and over. So fascinated by the mere premise of you get how much money, you can do whatever you want with it, but the fact that it drives him insane. Like, he almost goes, like, in a fucking mental institution because it's so crazy. He just he has I know. so little time, and he can't get rid of it. He keeps making money by accident. John Candy. Oh, I forgot. There's the other 1985 John Candy movie. So, yeah, yes, John by, Candy. By, by the end of 85, he is a bonafide star. Yes, of course. Oh, my God. I just love how he's the catcher in their minor league team, you know, and he's, like, talking so much shit to the hitters at bat. <laughs> or even the scene later on when they're uh, playing an exhibition game against the Yankees, you know, of course, you know, Richard Pryor's character has to spend all this money in this this amount of time so he can inherit the real fortune, which is ten times it. But, so he sets up that exhibition, he sets up his minor league team against the Yankees, and when one Yankee hitter goes up, you know, John Connie makes a crack about his wife, and then the next hitter that comes up actually agrees with him and confirms it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's funny because oh, this is the, the era where they said that he sold out. And I, I just think mm. that he wanted to... Yeah, I, but the projects, I think, are just better. Yeah, the toy is questionable, but after that, it's just really interesting for me. Uh, but Brewster's Millions is my favorite of his. Um, it's, just, it's a big production. Walter Hill, I really strange that he never did comedy again because he obviously has a knack for it. Oh, absolutely, yes. I mean, uh, it's good that he does his own thing. I love what he did with Warriors. I love Streets of Fire. And this, absolutely, you know, wholeheartedly enjoy this. <laughs> and I mean, especially with just seeing Richard Pryor just go off the rails. And it's like, you know, he's spending all this money. He's like, all right, good progress. And then all of a sudden, he, you know, John Candy makes him more money. And he's just like freaking out and just having his little fits. And he wants to break yeah, But he can't tell anybody. That's the worst part is he can't tell a single person what's going on. Yes. And of course, near the end though, where it's like, oh, he still had, he was like, he still had twenty thousand dollars, and he didn't know what to do with it. But that's because, you know, behind the scenes stuff, the um, firm uh, where his uncle, where his uncle was, you know, like two of those partners at the firm were trying to screw him over so they could inherit it, because Richard Pryor's the only last, uh, the only living one left. So they had that little twenty thousand rebate. Oh, yeah, no, refund. Yeah, yeah. So that's why he had the $20,000, but no, it was just, yeah, some backstabbing. And, oh, Pat Hingle the entire time. Oh, God, I love Pat Hingle. He's like a a really strong support during the 80s. Oh, absolutely. Oh, especially with Batman. Especially. I was thinking of Maximum Overdrive. (laughs) This is a hillbilly with a fucking rocket launcher at the gas station. (laughs) That's awesome. Well, of course, me as a kid, that's the first thing I knew him from was Batman. But yes, um, just seeing how that all unfolded out and just that very last minute after punching the guy, after Richard Pryor punched the guy in the face for screwing him over, then he said he was going to get sued. He's like, well, can I? and then he, of course, ends up hiring 
his accountant as his lawyer that last second, and then she makes the receipt right then and there, and he spends all his money. Yeah. Uh, is and it, then he inherits the 300 mil. I remember Rick Moranis being in this. Oh, God. What did he play? <laughs> oh, he was this guy who followed around and just, like, mimicked them the entire time in a funny way. That uh, was his job? Yeah, that was pretty much his job. That's all he did. Holy shit. See, was, he did three movies in 1985. I think all three are in 1985, where he only plays a small part. He was in so much demand. Um, but, because the previous year he had uh, Streets of Fire and Ghostbusters, and I feel like there was something else in there. But uh, in 85, he did a small part in this. He did a small part in Head Office, which is a movie you were supposed to watch! <laughs> but you're gonna I'll watch, watch it. <laughs> yeah, you watch it next. Rick Moranis is fucking gold in that movie. Um, but then he also did Club Paradise with Robin Williams, where he's just playing small little parts, whatever. And then 86, when he got uh, Little Shop of Horrors, that's when he became an A-lister. Oh, God, yes. Uh, how could you say? And he could sing. He could actually yeah, sing pretty really well. Really sing. I just listened to that soundtrack again. It's so much fun. Sherlock mm. looks like play food to me. <laughs> I've given you sunshine. <laughs> oh man, yes. Uh, again, uh, classic Richard Pryor comedy. So many jokes that had to have come from him. Oh yeah, and I just loved how it was so fast paced and so quick. Yeah, it was just beautifully done. And it's a, it's a Joel Silver production. This is when he went off on his own, and uh, they had previously worked together on Forty Eight Hours and uh, Streets of Fire. And so, uh, at the time, Walter Hill was working on Dick Tracy, and it was taken away from him. And I think that's when it went into Warren Beatty's hands, who never let go of it for fuck's oh. sake. But uh, so he was off Dick Tracy, and then he had to have a job immediately, and he needed a hit too. So uh, they knew him from Forty Dollars, and he could handle all those comedy sequences with Eddie Murphy, and that's how they got uh, got him to work with uh, Richard Pryor. Yes. Oh man. <laughs> Again, this is definitely a classic. And uh, but in real life, if Richard Pryor were to be in that situation, oh god, he would have he would have no problem spending thirty million dollars. None. I just, I'd, I'd expect to see a mountain of I would have expected to see a mountain of cocaine in his backyard. What's well, no. By this time, though, he's off drugs. He's clean, and oh. I think that's why he was nervous. Is because he didn't have the drugs to fall back on, and of course, he was in horrible uh, pain from being burned a couple years prior. So that, that wasn't. Oh, yeah. oh, okay. So that's when it happened. Well, All right. If you yeah, had if you had unlimited money like that, but for a short period of time, you can't invest it. What would you do? Oh. Shit. I've tried to do the same thing he did. Yeah. I, I, the one thing that bothers me is that he never really gives any of the charity. Why don't you buy up every food, you know, everything at a restaurant and give it away? Just go to restaurants, buy all their food, and give it to the homeless. Wait, isn't that wasn't that part of the uh, agreement, like part of the rules? Like he had some restrictions. Oh, was he that could, the rule? He couldn't give it away? Shit. Okay, man, I forgot about that. Yeah, damn, I know. It was very strict. That's why, okay. oh, man. That makes a lot more sense yeah, no. because you think the writers would not want to make him an asshole. But I can't believe this is the seventh time they've made this movie uh, from the book or whatever. But there's never been another one after this. Brewster's Millions is so remakeable. Yeah, no, oh, of course. Uh, you know, I, uh, honestly, there was one thing I know I would do as far as it goes for um, uh, where I live. Definitely fund a better public transit system. Get them better oh, buses. Oh, God. Yeah, just do yeah. You, can, you can't Lord. donate it though. That's when it gets screwed. So, yeah, like what five buses? 
you know. Well, remember like he ran for office. That was that was a thing where he was spending all this money trying to run for office, but not really running for office. Is that he was um, vote for no one, vote for nobody. <laughs> which this year, don't do that, please. Don't do that. Don't don't take don't. inspiration from Bruce's millions. Not right now. No. Please, no. <laughs> Maybe my, local elections. By the way, not, my no. mother. My mother has said that she will dye her hair purple if Joe Biden wins. And I was like, why not blue? And God bless her heart because she's a better person than I am. She says, well, he's supposed to be the president that's going to bring us all together and end this madness. He's not partisan. And I was like, purple makes sense, Mom. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Also, um, I will say this. Even on his worst day... Biden is better than our current president oh, right now. Sake. My my <laughs> stanky pair of underwear is better. So. <laughs> uh, okay, right. moving right along. Oh, yeah, sorry, moving everybody. right along. Yes, move right along. Right. For the fancy free, move right along. Oh gosh, this of course was a childhood favorite because you know, watching the previous movie and loving Chevy Chase. Uh, European Vacation. Yes. Now, originally, you know. we were not intending to do these, the Chevy Chase movies, because we recorded an episode years ago, in, in two, uh, 2015, uh, as a reflection back on 1985, which is like Chevy Chase's golden year. And guess what? I accidentally erased it. Oops. <laughs> Sorry. So, well, the, the punishment is we get to talk about his three classic 85 films. The, the pain, the suffering... Oh my god. The no, the they gout. don't have any pity my... on me, my poor soul. I have to watch European Vacation again. My bowels are erupting now. I, I will say this, European Vacation is the, European Vacation is the weakest of the four, but it's still pretty entertaining. But those shitty kids, man, those are the worst kids. <laughs> oh man. Honestly, I... I still enjoy this. Oh God, the Big Band Parliament moment. That <laughs> look, I can't get over oh kids. <laughs> I don't know why. Hours of this can't get over the Big Band Parliament. <laughs> <laughs> He's just laughing the entire time. Oh, oh no! I, oh, dude, I. What's the actress's name? Not Dana Hill. Uh, no, that's from the first. No, wait, hold on. Is that right? Oh shit! Dana Barron is from the first one. I think it is Dana Hill from the sequel. Sadly, yeah, she the passed actress. away. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, no, what was what was the cause again? Was it like a particular kidney disease? Yeah, I remember it was being something something wrong with her insides. Uh, okay, oh, okay. So she had diabetes, and which affected physical growth, which meant that she... Uh, hold on a second. Mm. Oh, man. Like, seeing her beside, behind-the-scenes stuff, like when it came to voice acting and whatnot, oh, she seemed like such a sweetheart, and she was really yeah. cool. She had a uh, diabetic coma in 1996. See, I thought she died way before that. She suffered a yeah. massive oh. paralytic stroke and then died at 32. Oh. No, that's so Oh, she did a bunch of voice work. She did the Tom and Jerry movie, Roll for Dangerfield, and Jetsons the movie. Rugrats. She was, oh gosh, she was, was in a she? lot of Rugrats. Oh, Rugrats yeah, Rugrats. look, I'm seeing all these cartoons that she did. Okay, so she just did that a lot. I, I only know her from this movie. Yeah. Uh, you have to think, she's, yeah, she even admitted, she's like, yeah, no, as far as like being in front of the screen, I don't know. I'm not as big on that. I mean, being behind doing voices—that's definitely her her uh, clique. Yeah, and I know. It's again, just, she, the, the way they write these kids and and how they're presented is just fucking assholes compared to the way they are in the first movie. It makes no sense to me. This is almost I mean, as they, as a completely different Rusty and uh, Audrey. 
Well, well, they are considering the different actresses. No, but I mean, personality-wise, it doesn't line up oh. at all. Rusty is a fucking whiner when he was like cool and chill for the most part, and so was Audrey, and she was always like on the sly. There's a moment where they argue in the first movie, but that's it. But then you see them in three and four, and those are the same Audrey and Rusty. In this one, they just diverge so much from their original characters. Hmm. I don't know. I've always felt like Rusty's still the cool guy, still having you know. It, the dream sequence in particular when he's like in that nightclub in uh, Some Like It Hot by Power Station's playing yeah. and uh, you know still that kind of guy and just doesn't really seal the uh, appeal of Europe and then Audrey oh gosh she's just so hung up on her boyfriend Jack played by um, <laughs> shit oh my gosh Johnny from Karate Kid and and of course, what the fuck uh, is his name? <laughs> this is bothering me. I just looked him up the other day. Why is it? He's I know a... you named him recently I know. too. He's in a cool movie called Shoot Fighter, which no one ever remembers. But um, William Zaka, Zaka. Yes, that's what it is. William yeah. Zaka. Yeah, I just uh, again like some of the situations that they get into just to go to Europe from winning the game show at the oh. beginning. <laughs> Picking uh, up oak. Picking up oak. Did I tell uh, you I saw this in oh. the theaters? No, I didn't. No, you did not tell me that. Yeah, we got free tickets to oh, go see it. I don't think my parents were ready for the nudity, and they're like, "Well, look away, look down, close your eyes." Eh, it's whatevs. <laughs> but I, then again, I, it's do, the 80s I, I was eight. Though. Like this. I was eight. I had to look away. You're gonna learn about it in sex ed sooner or later, Michael. <laughs> By the way, I didn't know this that uh, Dana Hill uh, was a child prodigy when it came to athletic. Uh, she placed third nationwide in the 880-yard run when she was 10 years old. Fourth in the wow. mile run nationally. So she was a, um, a, a prodigy, but it's her health problems uh, caused a problem. So yeah. she had to stop. Yeah. That's a shame, too. Yeah, but still, that's awesome. She accomplished quite a bit. Um, but yes, it's just the way it plays out when they're in London... Uh, <laughs> Fucking Chevy Chase is like trying to use his translator for the English guy, and Ross is like, Dad, <laughs> speaking English. Speaking English. <laughs> I know, Ross. Oh, man. I mean, it's uh, so funny the comparison between him in, in, in this and Fletch and, and Spies Like Us, where he's kind of cool and collected. But uh, in this, he I, lo- I think it's his most uh, pivotal role because he's so different in this. He's lost, he's confused, he's frustrated. He's like America's dad. Pretty much, yeah. Oh no! Oh god! Yeah, especially when they uh, in England they bump into Eric Idle on the bike or trying to get used to driving in on the <laughs> other side of the car. Strain the blood! <laughs> Man, I remember that as a kid. That blood's shooting out of his wrist. I'm like, oh my god! Yeah, it's like oh, it's just a flesh wound. He's like, <laughs> like nothing's wrong. It's like oh, oh, this, this, this freaking Eric Idle, this absolute golden, like every scene he's in in this movie. <laughs> Oh. oh, I love the scene yeah. where they get confused on which bedrooms they're going into, and she's in the bathtub, and Robbie Coltrane's there, and he ends up going into the yes. bedroom. It's like, honey, your uh, your hair smells different, and then all of a sudden, it's like, don't go. It's like, no, I gotta go. Oh, please, please, no, stay, just stay. It don't matter. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, no, or, or the Germans absolutely... when they think it's their aunt and uncle, and uh, they're like, they spend the whole afternoon with them. <laughs> they're like, who the hell is that? Oh God, I know. <laughs> Kids, look, Stonehenge. It's been here for a millennium, and nothing's gonna make it go away. Back up. <laughs> <laughs> it knocks it over. Oh no. Uh, freaking. Then they go to uh, Oktoberfest, and during uh, when they uh, get Chevy Chase to join in with the dance, he ends up like 
gets a slap and takes it personally and starts a fight. Yeah. And everybody, and this haven't been running. Right when Rusty's trying to get some action, this bell's haven't been running in years to get to hang somebody. And then he immediately knows that it's his dad. You know, I don't like well, the but, last 20 minutes, though. I don't like the whole thief plot. I know they have to wrap it up somehow, so that's inevitable. But I think it ends in, in just another one of those, oh, we got to have an action sequence and a villain for particularly no reason. Because if you look at the rest of the movies... The the finale is uh, more about the, I don't know it just seems different like you know the the desperation of Wally uh, Wally World uh, in part three the yes. desperation to save Christmas part four it's uh, to save their family and bring get, it back together because they've completely broken up uh, and this and one just get seems their money back. yeah part two just seems so <laughs> cliche it's so generic it did yeah that but yeah that is the, one of the elements that did kind of like pull out of the way oh my god the Paris sequence. <laughs> Rusty. Oh man, Rusty. <laughs> Rusty. I know. I was like, dang. <laughs> I love. Dog chases I love the soundtrack in this. Though the soundtrack in this is so good. That, I don't know the song, but it's a French song, and I go, ooh, wee, don't they walk Yeah, it's so much yeah, fun. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. And I love it the one the where they, they train all the fashions on. It's like, it's like, no, you need to do whatever. You know who directed this, right? Yeah. Uh, Amy Heckerling. Yes, coming off of Johnny Dangerously, she really was just on a roll for a while there. Oh yes, she was. Yeah, no, and again, yeah, just that last, just that last thief plot at the end is what kind of threw, um, kind of like threw it off of its formula. Yeah. I mean, a little different, but it's like, eh, I don't really feel like it fits this, uh, the Griswold family shenanigans. Um, but John Hughes, but yeah, he, still, he still wrote this, right? I feel like John Hughes is still involved up to this point. He does the first three, I think, and he steps away from part four. Right. No, I think what really made part one work was Harold Ramis. For yeah. sure. I'm trying to see who... Yeah, it says John Hughes wrote this. Robert Klein. Oh, I don't know who that is. But this is an expensive movie compared mm. to the first one. $17 million. It didn't make as well, much money as the first one. But um, I see why they pulled back a little bit before. For part three because it was so expensive but setting it around the house made it cheaper yes and it was just on a lot oh uh, in a particular studio too <laughs> do you want to know what else we're gonna be discussing this eventually but you know what else <laughs> robert clayne wrote besides the european vacation oh god do tell me <laughs> weekend at bernie's <laughs> ah yes <laughs> oh my god you know what i just remembered what not only um the little cabaret uh the cabaret. Uh, oh god, why am I forgetting? Oh, the booby scene. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to forget. Remember what it is. Like, why am I forgetting the? Why am I forgetting the name of this dance in this particular art performance? Uh, uh, it'll come back to me eventually. I don't even but know yeah, what's going on. that sequence. No, I'm trying to remember the the little cabaret scene uh, in France. Oh, where, uh, we, where, where, where Clark is way too enthusiastic. Look at them. He's doing the stretches with him and stuff like that. Hey, this is normal for Paris. This is a high around. class. <laughs> and he's like kind of like moving his... Uh, and I just love how he's like moving his head, just like kind of pointing it towards the other people. <laughs> how the heck did everybody keep a straight face? I don't know. Takes there was so many takes of this. Speaking of so many takes, let's talk about Fletch. You know that everybody on screen was cracking up as he took so many improvisational... I... I I've read the book. Most of these lines are not in the book. They're, I mean, the book's funny, but not like this. He's winging it through most of this. I bet you they had him do like 15 different takes with different lines, and it just works. He's kind of an asshole, though. As I get uh, The older I get, I realize that Fletch is kind of a dickhead. But um, mm. 
It's still so, so amusing. And it's a great mystery. That's the thing that makes this so good is because the bones of Fletch are there. Oh, absolutely. <sighs> yeah. Oh, when they're at the diner sequence uh, and he's ordering in French, like the French waiter's messing with him oh, yeah, the yeah. entire time to see if he knows what he's saying. But it's like, oh, God, what a great... And then they microwave. Oh, All the meals are microwaved. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, man. Yeah, just overall, I think it is a sequel. Not as, not as good as the first one, but, yeah, it does hold up, and I still find it just as hilarious. Oh, man. All right, our final oh, film, which I already talked about yes. a little bit, sorry. Oh, uh, Fletch? Yes. Yeah, oh, man. Seriously, yes, just Chevy Chase's improvisational genius, you know, bouncing off Tim Matheson, Gina Davis being in support as well. Yeah, Tim Matheson oh, really just... doesn't get credit for us, and Joe Don Baker, notorious for making some of the shittiest fucking movies. He's a terrible actor, but for some reason, he just works in this as that nasty, nasty cop. Oh, God, yes. Uh, again, just Chevy Chase going through so many disguises and, you know, <laughs> all these different personas and personalities and, of course, getting his little uh, prostate exam. <laughs> yeah, the whole fist, Doc? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard not to laugh about this movie. Um, again, Richard Kiplock, Tim Matheson hires him to do some kind of, you know, investigative work, you know, around L.A. regarding, um, oh, gosh. The, the drug situation down at the too. beach is what his main yes. point is. Exactly. And Tim Matheson hires him, you know, to uncover, like, some more uh, sinister plot uh, that's somewhat related to it. And in the end, it ends up being Tim Matheson uh, as the ringleader. Yeah, well, he him, fucks he up, though. That's the thing is, the whole thing is that he, th he literally believes that he is a homeless person. He has no idea who he is. He has no idea he's a reporter and just... By choosing the wrong person, he fucks up his whole plan because his plan was to to Fletch. He tells him that you're going to kill me because I have terminal cancer, and it turns out it's just all loop. And because they're the same height and they have the same kind of build, that he's going to kill him and then burn his body and make it look like him while he escapes with his real mm. one. Oh yes, of course. But <laughs> oh man, again uh, that that one particular sequence where he's uh wearing glasses and interviewing um oh god <laughs> seriously again yeah as you mentioned a minute ago Chevy Chase just kind of going off the rails uh with his improv uh, uh that, John Cocktoastinson <laughs> so ridiculous <laughs> can I have a steak sandwich and a, a steak sandwich and uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh man but yeah no uh Again, there was supposed to, this was supposed to be remade with Jason Sudeikis, wasn't it? Well, it's been so it's been tied to so many people. Miramax bought the rights. I want to say around two thousand, two thousand one, and originally it was for Kevin Smith. It was a gift for him, and he was going to write it, and he was going to be called Fletch Returns or something like that. When Chevy Chase is uh, towards the end of his career as a reporter. And then that didn't work out because they said Chevy Chase wasn't bankable. And so they tried casting, I think, Jason Lee. And that didn't work out because Jason Lee's movies all flopped. Uh, Joshua Jackson was attached. Zach Braff was attached. I think even Jason Bateman for a brief moment. But Jason Sudeikis is the last one I know of. And they were trying to make a movie out of it when the rights moved over to another studio. And I think making a movie is wrong. I think that it should go to, like, Amazon or something like that is either... 
uh, lower budget cool movies, you know, like do uh, like four a year or make it a TV show. Like each season is one book and it'd be really short seasons, like six episodes would cover the entire novel. And they've wanted to do Fletch yeah. One, which takes it back to the beginning. And then something they want to, if they're going to be Sudeikis, it can't be Fletch One. It's it's going to be the same age Chevy was when he made this. But I just don't know if it's ever going to happen. Exactly. Yeah. You know, saying that, honestly, especially like a multi-book series, definitely works. It definitely works like as a big budget TV series. Like if yeah. it were to go on HBO or Showtime or something like that. I just don't think it's cinematic uh, enough to make it into a theatrical film. I don't think you're going to get people in the theater. Oh, no, no, not around this time. I mean, depending on the comedic star and how much people yeah, love him. but it's, possibly, just, it's, it's not but... a sellable concept. It's not something, in the day and age of all these streaming channels, can you get someone to go to the theater for a light comedy mystery? Right, yeah, no. These days, no. Uh, heck, I think that's, uh, oh my god, why am I blinking on his name? Uh, Rushmore, uh, oh gosh. He was, oh, Wes uh, Anderson? Not Wes Anderson, uh, the kid who started it. Oh, Schwartzman, Jason Schwartzman. Jason Schwartzman, yes. Uh, the show he had on HBO, like that's why it was. Oh right, bored to death. Yes. Yeah, that was a good. That's one. what it was. Yeah, it had a kind of flavor of this. But yeah, the, the weirdest thing about this is there's so many books to choose from, but the sequel to this, which we'll discuss eventually, isn't based on any of the books. They just made up a whole new script, which is weird. Yeah. Wow. So this is uh, uh, directed by Michael Ritchie. Mostly we know him from this and uh, uh, Bad News Bears. A very prolific career, but it was written, and I think the reason why it works so well is Andrew Bergman, who is the co-writer of Blazing Saddles, Freebie and the Bean, The In-Laws, uh, Oh God, You Devil, The Freshman, Chances Are, White Fang, Undercover Blues, Soap Dish, Honeymoon <laughs> in Vegas, and highly, highly underrated film that he wrote and directed called The Striptease with Demi Moore, which I think is a very funny script, but it just got overblown because she got paid $12 million to show her boobs. And if they had done it differently, I, I think the movie would be uh, more uh, better received. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, well, just the concept of it, too. Like, damn, of course a lot of guys are going to want to see this. Yeah, but c- come on, Burt I mean, Reynolds and Ving Rhames are fucking hilarious. Oh, absolutely. Oh, God. Yeah. I love when Ving Rhames oh, comes in, he's like, hey, you got that free willy? And they're like, nah, it's dumb, man. Some motherfuckers just be sitting on these movies. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, God, yes. No, it's been so long since I've seen that movie. <laughs> Sir, why are you so shiny? It's Vaseline. I have it squishing between my toes. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he's like like shirtless, like yeah, yeah. boxer shorts, vest, cowboy hat. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> God. Oh, Robert Patrick, though. Oh, man. <laughs> Robert Patrick was hilarious in that seg- in that sequence, especially when he um, yeah, that's busted well, on them should, on their we yacht. We should do that movie for 96. Let's not go into it, into it, but I didn't know if you would like that. Absolutely. So yeah, it says right now, Warner Brothers bought back the rights in 2011, and Jason Sudeikis has been attached since then. In 20... Oh, no. Never mind. In July of 2020, it was announced that the reboot is back at Miramax, which I just heard they filed for bankruptcy. John Hamm oh, is producing and going to star in it, with Greg Matola, the director of Superbad, to direct. Oh wow! Oh, I love John Hamm when it comes to comedy. Oh, dude, he'll be he'll kick ass. Oh, this is why this Hamm. is why Jason Sudeikis has never went. His rights were yes, technically attached to Warner Brothers, but it's through a production deal with Relativity Studios, and Relativity Studios oh. went bankrupt about five years ago. Their last movie was oh. Masterminds. Oh damn! 
Shit. Yeah, so it's just a really fun movie. The that. mystery is rock solid. There's some dead serious stuff mixed into this. I mean, the fact that they're, they're flat out going to kill Fletch because, in Jordan Baker's words, that he's inter- uh, interrupting his drug sting, which is bullshit because he is the drug sting. Um, and that's all tied <laughs> to Tim Matheson. So the movie's very complicated, very smart. But there's a lot of great one-liners in there. And just the zany scene alone for when he pretends to be a... A real good boy, kind of uh, airplane uh, airplane pilot technician or whatever, and he's got that big shiny hair. I'm from the FAA. And uh, he goes, and he doesn't know shit. He didn't know a fucking oh. thing about working on planes. And there's the one there's the one gruff guy, but then there's the one guy who is from Honeymoon in Vegas. He's like, where are the Elvis Utahs? Or, or what, Elvis Utahs, sorry. Where are the flying Elvises Utah chapter? <laughs> But it's just like, well, you know it's over there, right? What were you looking out there for? Don't tell me what I'm doing, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, discussing this movie and re- remembering those sequences. It's hard for me to get through or even yeah. discuss well, without and, having to laugh, man. And Dana Wheeler Nicholson uh, is not a flimsy bimbo. A lot of these movies make the girl useless or goody two shoes or a bimbo. And she is very locked into who she is as a God, person. Yes. She never lets Fletch really fuck with her because she's always like, yeah, I'm on to you. There's something weird going on. She's like, and I'm not going to cheat with you before she realizes he's a private detective. But she's fucking there with him on this journey, especially at the end. She's like, no, you're not taking me down. You're not taking my money. You're not going to leave me. You're not going to kill Fletch. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, no, she stomped her foot down. She's like, you know what? I'm here. I'm going to fuck shit up. Do not mess with me. Yeah. Do not do this. Uh, in the supporting cast, not just Gene Davis, but we also have um, uh, Robert Libertini as his boss, who I know from all of me and, and, and uh, uh, the cop show, uh, Barney Miller. And um, who is the tool? He's the one from Spaceballs, Colonel... Uh, Colonel Sanders? Colonel Sanders. Colonel Sanders. Fuck, I didn't, even, I didn't remember that. <laughs> um, George Weiner. Uh, he is his ex-wife's lawyer, and he sneaks into his place, whatever, and he just he kills me. So funny. Oh, absolutely. I mean, seriously, ever since watching him in Spaceballs, um, yeah, every, like every uh, every other comedy I see him in as like a background character or have like a little liner here and there, it's always appreciated, yeah. and he still holds his own. <sighs> oh, man. So that is the Ugh. first half, I think. No, we, there's so many movies in 1985. I can't believe how many great movies there are in 1985. Now, thankfully, 86 and 87 are going to be easy for us because, uh, hey, that was a commercial break. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Hold on, I got the list. Damn it. <laughs> um, 86 and 87, we already recorded anniversary episodes of that years ago. And we can just splice it into here so it won't be as hard. But I'm looking at the movies left for 85. Yeah. We have uh, Police Academy 2. And Office. Uh, head Office, Russell's Ramp- Rhapsody, which is hilarious Western parody, uh, Back to the Future, Pale Rider, Silverado, um, After Hours, Spies Like Us, Clue. Uh, if I can find it, we can do Witness. There's Last Dragon. Um, movie Violations, I need to find it. It's the one movie that uh, Bill Murray's uh, uh, youngest brother starred in from, I believe, the writers of Real Genius and Bachelor Party. Yes. Yeah, I so remember that. Uh, there's, oh, beer. Oh, my God, you have to see beer. Beer is the lost satire that no one's ever heard of. It made no, <laughs> it made no money, um, it, but it was a regular HBO staple, and it's the first time the world got to see David Allen Greer, and it's a fucking great 
uh, movie about uh, how we are manipulated through advertisements. Oh, God, yes, of course. Well, shoot, look at They Live. Yeah. That's a more serious take on it. Right, right. The beers are a very funny one. But, um, yeah, and Rip Torn. Rip Torn is so powerfully magic. Yes. He's, he's in beer with uh, Sally Kellerman, I believe. But um, I can't wait for you to see it. Oh, God, I really want to see it now. So we're, we're probably going to be doing three episodes this time again, like just like 1984. Because it's funny is we, hard, we had a hard time getting enough movies for 1980 and 81, but then it just kept picking up and picking up better movies and then by the mid 80s man it's just oh it's the greatest era for movies i think for a while oh god yes no i mean as you can tell by this list yeah things get better and better oh but comedy golden age comedies are king during this time i feel like around 90 91 things dip a little bit but then, then they come back by the mid 90s i can when i when i think about my favorite movies i really don't think of anything from like 1989 to 94 95 mm. Well, as far as eight, oh, as far as eighty nine goes, oh gosh, you know, there's quite a few I want to talk. Yeah, about. Yeah, but what we haven't already discussed, we already did Batman, we already did Ghostbusters, uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Yeah, you're right. You're right. We never did Uncle Buck. You, you're always right. <laughs> what is that from? What is that from? Uh, Spaceballs. Oh, right. Okay. Jack Candy. <laughs> all right, that's oh, a perfect man. way to close this episode. So thank you, everybody. Be excellent to each other, and Jacob, send us out. All right, namaste and good luck. Hope you enjoyed this first part of the 1985 trilogy. I did. I don't give a fuck if you didn't. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Please don't, don't. Keep listening. We're evil. <laughs> All right, everybody. It is time for our action segment, Films of 1985, curated by my co-host, Rob. How's it going, Rob? Hey, what's going on, buddy? How you doing? I'm excited. This is the year that action movies blow up. Like, I mean, literally and figuratively. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. Where where the style changes now. We, we get, uh, I think a lot of it has to do with two major films. One we're not covering because it's, it's old hat. Uh, is Rambo yeah. Part 2, but Commando is really, like, no one talks about it, but the influence of that film is felt for the next I, I think still felt the way they edit and shoot stuff, and Mark Lester gets no credit for it. Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, I, and I've, I've said that numerous times about Lester. Mark Lester is probably one of the most underappreciated directors in the action genre today. Yeah, well, it's. I think the problem is that he was rebellious and he wanted to do things his own way. So I think that studios just kind of balked at that, and now he's. A, I mean, he just barely gets you know direct a video films done. Yeah, man, that's bad. I know, like, the last thing he did was, like, wasn't it, like, Pterodactyl or something? Like that? <laughs> Something for the Sci-Fi Channel, I just know it. Yeah. Um, so that is your favorite action film, correct? It, it absolutely is. My all-time favorite action film. Like, and the funny thing is, is that, uh, I remember we discussed it before, and you just said it out of nowhere, and it's like, I, I, it's either it's, like, it's easy to guess, or it's just, like, I talk about it so much. And it's just, you know, common knowledge. Like, no, actually, I didn't know. Comedy. I didn't know. I had no clue. I've never seen you talk about this. <laughs> I, I talk about Commando a lot. Do you? Well, I guess I'm just oblivious then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I um I remember uh, my ex uh, used to complain about the amount of times I watch it. Like, <laughs> hey, we, we have thousands of movies, movies all over the place. And all he watches is fucking Commando. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I would say my favorite action movie we've already covered, but we're covering a sequel to it, is The Road Warrior. Oh, yeah. I've seen that one way too many times. Wait, is there too many times? Hold on a second. Let's rewind that statement. No, there's not too many times for your favorite action film. Yeah, never could be too many <laughs> So tell me, what is it about Commando that triggered like so hard inside of you that you're like, this is it. This is the, the peak of action films. It was like, it was one of those films that I, I watched probably entirely too young, you know, and just became really enamored with for a young age, and I just never got over that love for it. Uh, like, you know, watching, you know, shootout, like, I remember being really into that scene where, uh, where, um, the, the, you know, the assault on his, uh, his house, and, uh, they take Jenny, and the dude's just sitting there, and he's trying to, like, that, hey, mellow out, man, if you want your kid back, you gotta cooperate, right? And he's just wrong, and he shoots <laughs> him in the head. Like, I, I just remember as a kid, rewinding that part over and over and over again, just like, yeah, 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 yeah. So that was the kind of kid I was, you know, just like, like, Commander was just filled with moments like that, you know, just great, like, you know, because what I love about Commando in comparison to one you mentioned already, uh, First Blood Part 2, is that it doesn't really take itself seriously at all. It's very tongue-in-cheek, like, it knows that, like, yeah, we're just, we're just, you know, having fun here in comparison to First Blood Part 2, which takes itself incredibly serious, like... Well, if it was done, if, if if First Blood Part Two was done by a different director, I think it would have come off more like Uncommon Valor, which has a lot of dignity and grace to something so difficult with us. But Rambo is like you have James Cameron's script, but then it's like completely uh, gone wackadoo because George Kamados and uh, Sylvester Stallone worked together to make it like a comic book. And and, and look at yeah. what happened after that. We did get comic books. We got toys. We got cartoons. That's fucked up for a Vietnam POW movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, There's like that, uh, comic books, uh, I was watching the cartoon, like, they made a cartoon out of Rambo, that's so fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> well, they did make a toy line, though, of this movie, didn't they? Uh, yes, yes, they did, yeah, which is equally fucked up. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, I mean, <laughs> at least there's something kind of noble, there's something so cartoonish and insane about Commando, and I, I got the director's cut, and there's not that much added, but... Woo! The shit they took out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you told me Joseph Zito directed this instead, I would have been like, "Yeah, I get that." <laughs> yeah, that would that, that would have been. Um, and the funny thing is, one of the big moments that they did add was the famous uh, scene where Arnold cuts the guy's arm off with the, the big knife. And I remember that being another scene where I, I, I rewound all the time. Like, <laughs> But, like, you know, now you see the extra moment where, like, you know, you see the dude writhing around on the ground in pain, and Arnold just throws his arm back to him. And it's just like, oh, Jesus. Yeah. (laughs) Well, there's a formula that Joel Silver perfected on this film. I mean, what he had done before this, uh, Xanadu, 48 Hours, and Streets of Fire, right? He he hadn't done anything else, I don't think. Um, Yeah, yeah. But 85 is when he broke off from the Gordons, right? Or maybe I haven't done that yet, but... Um, he got that formula down. He got the one-liners. He got a whole cast of, like, his crew. It's like a theatrical crew. Um, yeah. So pe- faces are going to be popping up that you know so well from his previous productions. And uh, and, then, and after this, he'll have it down, too. But the, the music, the way it's edited, uh, the, the pacing of the action sequences to non-action sequences, you know, it's like every 10 minutes, it's, you got to have another setup. I mean, yes, part of that's influenced by Raiders of Lost Ark, but the way Joel Silver sets it up is somewhat different. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Also, um, the the he he perfected, I think, the 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 crazy uh, action hero with the the witty sidekick because that's exactly what Cindy is. Like Cindy is definitely Matrix sidekick in there. I don't think Cindy gets enough credit. No. For like her participation in the movie because. He like if you if you think about it, Matrix needs Cindy more than Cindy needs Matrix because he gets himself with the certain times in trouble with that. You know, if she wasn't there, he he would have been dead. Like when he almost gets shot at by the you know, the police officer in the mall, or when he gets arrested and you know she famously uh, gets him out of the arrest by shooting the the rocket launcher. <laughs> I remember laughing my ass off first time I saw that. <laughs> Also, also the fact that she was uh, a pilot in training and she knew how to fly, so that's how they get to Valverde anyway. You know, like he he, he got extremely lucky by picking this stewardess to basically kidnap. You know, it's just absolutely this pure luck that he picked the one stewardess who knew how to fly. You know, who could pick up shooting rocket launchers at the drop of a hat. You know, so Cindy is just like absolutely just amazing and. Uh, I don't think, uh, especially the you know in the same age where it's like, you know, the, with the women thing, you know, it's like oh you know women this women that, and it's like you know Cindy is just absolutely amazing, and I think she deserves all the credit in the world for being exactly what she is, is Matrix sidekick. Right. Well, Radon Chung is also. I, I feel like a lot of her own personality is influenced in this. From what that episode, I, I was listening to some podcast. I can't remember what it was called. It came from Hollywood or True Stories in Hollywood. Um, where she talks that we're going to just cast some bimbo, and, and, and she was going to be kind of like just dopey and stupid the whole way, and she refused. You know, they kind of want her to be like, um, what's uh, the second Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom, what's the... Uh... Oh, oh, yeah, Will, uh, Willie Scott. Right, it was kind of like that, and she was like, there's no way in hell. So she went in, and she was like trying to be a force to reckon with. She was going to spar with Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, you know, uh, in the acting sequences, and he absolutely oh, yeah. loved it, so they cast her instead, but that might also be a reason why... After this, she only had a brief boost, and then it just faded away. Is because some people are just very rebellious and refuse to play ball by the studio rules. And, and you know what? Good power to them. You know, fuck the studios. Yeah. Totally. But uh, yeah, yeah, she was a hero. We um, we saw this. I think kind of later in the Arnold Schwarzenegger run. Uh, I don't think I saw it until the early '90s. But I remember my sister being like, "She's fucking awesome." Well, she didn't say fucking, but she said she's awesome. <laughs> no, no, she totally is. She's like. Uh... You know, like every I love every single one of her lines. Like, uh, and I guess that could be attributed to uh, Stephen D'Souza who wrote this. Um, she just like, like uh, she's just sitting there watching a uh, Matrix Fight Club in in the hotel room. She's like, I can't believe this macho bullshit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> these guys eat too much red meat. You know, and it's just like lines like that. It's just like I love Cindy. I absolutely love Cindy. And in their dialogue scenes, uh, usually with action stars. Um, they're not very chatty. That kind of changed with Die Hard, but they're usually yeah. stoic and, and they didn't say very much. And I don't think it's because of Arnold's limitation in English. I think it's because of who his character is. He's more stoic and reserved. So when he does talk, it's like his movements when he's fighting is they're very selective. There's no wasted yeah. words. And so their conversations aren't just, oh, she's going to talk a bunch and he's not going to say anything because he can't get it across. No, he's just very particular about what he says. But I, I think, no, and it works better that way for their, you know, their partnership, their relationship, you know, that she's basically the mouth and he's the silent one, you know. 
the, the, the silent stoic one. Uh, I love that scene where, uh, where she's complaining in the car. And it's like, uh, you know, you kidnapped me. You asked me to help you find your daughter, which I'm very tired of you. <laughs> and then I watch a river pole move on this wall. Sprinkle the sound like cars in. It's a car about to shoot you. And I said, if you start shooting me, are you going to tell me what the hell is going on or what? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Damn it. <laughs> That's a perfect... That's a perfect moment right there. <laughs> oh, man. And I love, I love any sequence set in a mall during the 80s. I'll even tolerate the 90s. But that's the mall that they always use, like in Fast Times Ridge High and stuff like that, right? What's that? The gallery yeah. or something? Yeah, it was also in uh, Terminator 2. Oh, wow. So, okay. That, that, yeah. So Arden returned to it a couple years later. We, another one of his classics. We get a great group of villains in this. Do you want to regale us with some of the great character actors that are villains? Oh, yeah, you get uh, Dan Padilla as um, the dictator Arius. You get um, the great Bill Duke as Cook. Yes. You get uh, David Patrick Kelly as Sully. That's one of the greatest moments. And, uh, of course, how, how can we not forget uh, uh, Vernon Wells as Bennett. Holy uh, shit. I feel like he's not as in shape as he should be to take on Arnold. He's not in his uh, Road Warrior shape. He looked a little soft. No, no, that is true. Like I had a, I had, I had a buddy once who, uh, and he was a big fan of Commando as well too. And he was watching it. He called me in the middle of the day to complain. He was like, "Oh, it makes me so mad." Like I'm looking at it. He has no muscle tone. He has no muscle tone at all. I'm, I'm upset. His shirt isn't even like his shirt isn't helping at all. It's like this weird uh, like sleeve for chubbiness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And not that he does. I mean, some wrestlers back then were like that shape, I guess. So you could just use your mask. But you're talking, you're taking on Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I'm like, no, 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 no. I mean, but that that's commonplace in a lot of movies like that happened in the '80s and '90s. Like, I remember. Just recently had a discussion about that where uh, we were talking about Roadhouse and uh, the, the climax of the movie is uh, Dalton versus uh, Brad Wesley, uh, uh, Ben Bezzera, and it's like, come on. Yeah. <laughs> you know we're going to get that in 1989. we got to talk Roadhouse and Next of Kim. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And also, uh, I was just talking about it today because uh, I know John Bell's birth, uh, birthday was recent. And uh, when he fights Stallone at the end of Cliffhanger, and it's like, come on. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, spare me. Yeah. Spare me these guys could be these, these muscle-bound, like, you know, shredded up, you know, soldiers, you know. And, you know spare me the bullshit. It's a uh, it's a weird time because we are now getting studio attention on these movies that were kind of exploitation but done so poorly. Like there were action movies before this in this vain whereas like guns for hire kind of stuff military guys but it always seemed like it just couldn't come across and commando really is it just kicks down the fucking door and says here we go this is the 80s for you oh absolutely absolutely most definitely boy that end is like a video did they make a video game of this because i swear to god the whole ending is set up like a platformer oh yeah yeah and i remember uh hearing that um that it, it the, the the climax was supposed to only feature like him killing uh like a few guys but then uh i would say joel silver saw uh first blood part two i was like no we have we need more guys for him to kill at the end so it basically just becomes this iconic climax where he kills like 70 something dudes uh 
it's just like, you know, and, and it's crazy because, you know, it, it was amazing to look at back then, but it's laughable now when you look at, you know, all kinds of, you know, soldiers and movies. Right. It's more like A-team style stunts in this one. Yeah. You know, like, like nowadays, like you look at, you know, John Wick and it's done like accurate, like the style of shooting. Back in, back in those days in Commando, he's only shooting from the hip. He's not really barely aiming. But he's hitting everybody everywhere, like guys on the roofs, guys over to the left, to the right. There's, there's a great scene where um, he's, he's just he's just moving the gun slowly from left to right, and he's hitting everybody. And there's a guy <laughs> that comes around the tree and shoots at him, and the bullets literally just happen behind. Like it seems like the bullets pass through him and like just litter the background. And it's just like, was he a ghost now? Like, What's going on here? <laughs> Nothing touched him, and then he just turns around all slowly, like, "Oh, I gotta kill you now." <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's such a silly comic book movie, and it, it it knows that it is. That's what's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's why I love it so much. Yeah, it, it knows. It knows it's silly, and it, you know that's that's one of the reasons you gotta praise Schwarzenegger for it because you know he he made sure like which is funny too because he was the most politically ambitious, obviously. The man went on to be governor of California. Yeah. And he married into Kennedys and stuff. But he always made sure to keep all that stuff out of his movies. Like, his movies are very political-free, in a sense. Like, when, in comparison to Stallone, who, like, his movies were very political. You know? Especially that Rambo First Blood Part Two, like, that end. Yeah, was, like, well, also the end of Rocky Four. Yeah. Like, Rambo Two is the worst, though. Like, he, he delivers that speech at the end about the Vietnam vets, and he... And Stallone delivers it like he's delivering Shakespeare. Yes, oh, it's still it's Stallone. still more convincing than that speech at the end of Undeadly Ground. What the fuck was that? <laughs> totally, oh. totally. And Stallone, he's going so, for our country to love us just as much as we love it. And it's like, dude, this is not Hamlet. I'm not <laughs> stop it. <laughs> yeah, and Schwarzenegger knew. Oh, what he was doing. His formula of how he would pick films it worked for so long. I don't know why it's it's stopped working. I, it, it's, it, we'll get to it eventually. I think it's the last action hero seemed to be like that one big yeah. dent, but it's it, that yeah. movie I love now. Uh, well, I loved it then too, but um, it he, he, did, he definitely says that. Uh, I, I read his book, uh, and he says that uh, he, he pinpoints last action hero as the beginning of the end for his film career. Yeah. I think every actor kind of has that, though, where there's a big bump, except for Stallone. Somehow he seems to bounce back. It's fucking insane how he's always able to do it. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, Stallone, Stallone is a legend. But our second film we should talk about is uh, another big adventure hero that didn't last. Uh, not only did the series not continue to a sequel, Fred Ward never became an A-lister after Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins and sadly ends. Yeah. I was I was thinking about that too, because it's like Fred Ward is an actor that seems to be beloved, but that nobody really knows, and it's it's weird. Yeah, I don't know if he's ever had a hit movie. I really don't. On video, yes, but in theaters, no. Hmm. Like you know, like if anybody remembers him, it's from Tremors, right? He's like you know playing second demanding for um, Kevin Bacon. But it's like, everybody I talk to, like, you know, I mean, who's familiar with films, oh, my God, I love Fred Ford. But, like, he's obviously, you know, to the masses, it's like, who's this guy, you know? He's the guy from Tremors. Oh, I, 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 I kind of, and it's like, that sucks, because Fred Ward is a I love Fred Ward. 
Yeah, it's it's that one big shot. He had been building up for a little bit from right stuff on up. I think they tried with Time Rider for him to be a leading man, but that was such a small movie that, that you can just kind of just toss that one away. But this is a $20 million uh, MGM, or no, it was Orion movie. And they yeah. released it in the summer, thought it was going to be like the new version of James Bond. And I feel like the movie is just too far behind. Like it feels, was it directed by Guy Hamilton? It feels like it's about eight years mm-hmm. too late. This feels like a 70s action film. Um, yeah and no. Like, cause I, I, re, I, re, I haven't seen it in a while, so I, re, I have to rewatch it for this, this discussion. And I was, uh, like, you know, kind of a little, you know, amazed by, like, wow, this, you know, but, you know, you know, like you said, you had Guy Hamilton, and Guy Hamilton, of course, is known for his Bond film, uh, specifically, um, Gold, uh, Goldfinger, you know, which he's most famous for. And it's like, Wow, like, you know, like the scene where he has to break into the warehouse where they're holding the, what was it, the AR-50, 60? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and like, you know, like the laser shoes and this big explosion. And it's like, wow, this feels like, you know, very modern for, uh, I mean, at the time, for what Guy Hamilton probably was used to. But I, I like, yeah, I think it was, you know, maybe, like, I don't know what the problem was. It's, this is one of those movies where it's just like, I, I don't know what the problem was. Yeah, I've been trying to figure out, too. There's stuff that, like, oh, this is a little dull. This is a little slower than you expected. Is it, maybe it's the curse of 1985, or 84, 85, is when movies were changing, and the way that this is shot and the way that it's edited doesn't feel, like, of that moment. It feels a little old school. I think maybe it's because, like, you know, by 1985, excuse me, by 1985, like, you had movies like, like, Commando, First Love, uh, invasion USA, and those were the like movies of like big body counts, like right. body count by the hundred. And Remo doesn't really have a big body count, you know. Like he, I mean, he fucks a couple guys up, you know, and he, he basically uh, punctures uh, Patrick Kilpatrick's eye really fucked up, and he blows the dude up at the end. But uh, it's like, yeah, he's not like machine gunning everybody down. And I think that was like, like you said, like you know. The this this was the year of Rambo. You know, Rambo basically. You know, everybody wanted to be Rambo by this point. Right. Had so many Rambo knockoffs after this, and like this was more old-fashioned adventure kind of story. Yeah. And, you know, it, it felt it, like the style was very modern, but like you know, the the sensibility of it is very old-fashioned adventure. You know, fighting and all that stuff. So I think that's probably, maybe, I'm just spitballing, but I, I'm thinking that's probably what it was. Well, we're also talking, yeah, it couldn't be as violent. So if you're going to be PG or PG-13 when it comes to action adventure, I think you need more action sequences of spectacle and awe. Now, I'm not going to say those two sequences that are the, the film is known for aren't challenging, but for some reason they, they're just not visually like, boom! You know, climbing the, uh, the Statue of Liberty is truly astounding and insanely difficult. And the uh, end sequence when he's riding that log while they're shooting at him, they sound like great ideas, but for some reason, visually, they don't just make you go, that's fucking cool. Yeah, it, it's, it, it's more like it, it, it has an adventurous appeal, but it, yeah, like it, it lacks a cool factor. I mean, I, it, it's probably cool to like like people who grew up on serials, like, you know, that old-fashioned... Right, yeah, yeah. Well, it is based it, on the old pulp novels, so... yeah. Yeah, so, like, you know, obviously, you know, it takes inspiration from that. And, you know, it probably appeals to those kind of people, but, like, you know, by this point, you know, everybody just wants to see 
you know, sweaty buff dudes with giant machine guns yeah. blowing hundreds of dudes down. It, uh, so like, did you ever read the books at all? Shame. Ah. No, they're not that good. They're, they lasted forever and ever. <laughs> but they're not cinematic. They're, they're, it's like 120 of them, I think. And there was a comic book of this. They, they, they tried to uh, make a TV spinoff of the movie. Um, have you ever seen that one? There, it's, I think it's on YouTube. I'll, I'll try to find you the link. It's uh, Jeffrey Meek, who starred in the TV show Raven in the early 90s. Um, and Roddy McDowell takes over for Joel Gray's role, which that, if you're younger and you're seeing it for the first time, you're going to be like, why is this happening? I don't know why it's happening. It was yeah. the 80s. It was weird. They used special effects to make an old Jewish guy look Asian. Uh, but it's still yeah. a, a hell of a performance. No, no, he's great. He's great. I... I, I <laughs> I thought the same thing as I rewatched it. I was like, did, did they really have to, you know, they, they couldn't find, like, you know, I mean, Mako was around at this time. Right, that's so, it's Mako. so strange they chose him, because he's a dancer, I guess, and he had to have those swift moves, but don't tell me they couldn't find an Asian guy with some swift moves. <laughs> it's not like, yeah. Joel Gray was the only yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, Mako was totally around, doing a thing, he was young, fit enough to, you know, he was young, fit enough to pull this uh, this role off. Don't tell me like you know you couldn't get Mako to do this. Right. But, I mean, with with that being said, Joe Gray is fantastic in the role. You know, he he is amazing. Like his you know his back and forth with Remo was just absolutely hilarious. <laughs> I to this day I still say you whine like mule. <laughs> the coworkers are bitching for no reason. <laughs> he moves like baboon. Club feet. <laughs> Even even when he's not there, when uh, Chung is not too happy about it either, he said you smell like hamburgers. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't he watch soap operas? I'm trying to remember. I feel like he yeah, watched. Yeah, that's his big, yeah, My stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> this is a movie that's kind of in limbo right now. The Blu-ray uh, rights are gone because uh, damn it, what company? It just they went out of business because the owner died. Not all. Oh, uh, Twilight Time? Twilight Time. Yeah, it was a Twilight Time release. And it was loaded to the gills with extras, and I just, I blew it. I, I should have got it when I had the chance. And uh, so if you can score it for cheap, I'd be surprised because it's like $40 minimum right now. And uh, sometimes you can find it streaming. I think I found it on Tubi, I think. Um, I, I found it on uh, Prime. Yeah. I, I, have, I have it on DVD, but I don't know. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a fun watch. It's it's that one shot where they really tried to get Pulp Heroes back. I think a lot of it's because of Indiana Jones and James Bond were so red hot at that moment. But um, yeah. it just it never happened. But at least they got a movie and a TV show out of it. I know for years they tried to get the uh, – uh, that, what's that one book? Mac Bolan, The Exterminator. They tried forever to get that into a movie series, and they just couldn't because it was too violent. <laughs> and I'm like, guys, if you had just done it in 1985, you would have been good. Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> All right, what is our third film? Um, uh, ooh, should we go with? Flip a corner. <laughs> you want to go with Code or you want to go with Mad Max? Uh, I will go with Code. Okay, go with code. I just got done watching it too. Um, for my money, I think that Chuck Norris signing with Canon Pictures destroyed his career. He should have stuck with El Orion because his two best movies. Yeah, it's gonna be something. Dog hairs. Um, that's awkward. Uh, <laughs> the two movies he made with Orion are his best. Yes, I do enjoy Delta Force. Yes, I do enjoy um, 
Invasion USA, and they were a little more higher budget than the two he did for Orion, but when it comes to quality, Lone Wolf and Quaid and Code of Silence are the only ones that you could put in possibly A-list kind of film. Yeah, totally. Um, as, as I said before, when we discussed uh, Lone Wolf and Quaid, my father is not really a fan of Chuck Norris. As a matter of fact, he, he hates his movies. He, uh, all but two, which is Lone Wolf and Quaid and this one. And a lot of it has to do with the directors, man. Steve Carver is a legit yeah. director who gets no respect, but Andrew Davis did get respect. He was like a go-to guy for this genre for a long time. Yeah, like, he was the kind of guy, like, Andrew Davis is the kind of guy who you could give, like, a kind of, like, genre film like this, and he could make it classy, you know? Yeah, an and authenticity. Kind of movie, yeah, he makes these movies classy. Like, he gives them, like, a sort of grounded, gritty reality sense. I mean, to, 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 the, to the films. And, uh, like, yeah, like, this is the one film I could say, I mean, this is not my personal favorite Chuck Norris film. I gotta give that to uh, Invasion USA for how ludicrous it is. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's pretty nuts. Fucking, yeah, it's just absolutely fucking ludicrous. But, um, uh, Code of Silence is that one film where it takes, like, you know, that persona of Chuck Norris, you know, that we everybody will come to know from the Chuck Norris facts it makes him, like, believable in a way that's just, like, you believe that, like, uh, you know, he's this, just this one-man army badass, but you believe it, you know? Yeah. Well, also, they surround him with a really good cast of, like, who's who of Chicago actors. These guys aren't yeah. recognizable names. They're just like, oh, uh, you know, just uh, if it's an action movie in the 80s, early 90s, there's a good chance they're going to show up in it. Um who, damn it, why can't I think? Dennis Farina, I think, is the only one who really broke out from this. Yeah, yeah. You know, Farina as uh, his partner. Oh, of course, for Farina, who was a career cop. And, uh, which is weird that Farina, like, you know, he either played cops or he played, like, mobsters. Yeah, well, he probably knew like, mobsters I, pretty well. <laughs> yeah, 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 he really did. I guess because, you know, he spent his career, like, you know, he, he, like, he was a career cop, so he spent a lot of time you know, chasing down mobsters and stuff, so he knew how to act in, so he could act as a mobster really well, you know. But, uh, yeah, um, he, he was, like, it was a good cast, like, uh, I really loved uh, Henry Silva. Oh, uh, Columbia uh, Necktie, yeah. holy shit, I'll never forget oh, that. Oh my god, that's my favorite scene in the movie. Is, I know a lot, a lot of people love the, the bar scene, but the, I love that scene. Yeah, is he there a, another movie we watched? I swear there was a movie we watched just a couple episodes ago. Where they had the Colombian necktie as a reference. I, I know I've seen it in something else. Uh, I'm going to look it up because I swear that I saw that in another movie. I was like, you stole that from Code of Silence! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that scene. I, I absolutely love that. Because I just, you know, because it perfectly fits Chuck, you know, that, that, that moment right there. When he's telling us, uh, oh, it's the Colombian, he's explaining the Colombian necktie. And then uh, he's like, oh, on you, it would look perfect. And Chuck is like, why don't you give it to me right now? <laughs> yeah, that <laughs> took some balls. It was actually the year after this, uh, Running Scared. Uh, Jimmy Smits tells uh, them that I'm going to give you a Columbia necktie. And uh, same exact uh, description. I, I It wasn't for one of our episodes. I had watched it on my own time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Running Scared is great. It's one of my parents' personal I love, yeah. I wish they always wanted to make a sequel called Running Hot where they go down to the islands and it never got made. Yeah. <sighs> Bummer. That's a shame. Yeah. 
But uh, there, there, I want to. This is just a oh, side note. Molly Hagen, who plays the the young daughter in this, who gets kidnapped, she is actually from my hometown. Really? Yeah, Fort Wayne, Indiana. She used to do commercials when she was on Herman's Head, if you remember that show. Uh, uh, I remember Herman's Head. <laughs> yeah, she used to do promos, uh, promos for Fox and uh, say, uh, watch Herman's Head Thursday nights on your local TV station, my hometown, Fort Wayne, Indiana. I was like, what? <laughs> Something famous for this town? It was, it was weird seeing, like, because I, I had seen her in a bunch of stuff before I seen this. I seen this, I was, I want to say my teens, like, my and uh, it was weird because, like, I had seen her in a bunch of stuff, like Herman's Head, and uh, I think she was also the ringmaster that Jerry Springer. Yeah, was. yeah, I remember that movie. <laughs> so it was it was weird to see her playing, like, a teenager in the movie, like, because I'm so used to seeing her as an older woman. Yeah. I was like, this is weird, you know. <laughs> but she's great in the movie. She's great. I love the, the gimmick they have at the end with the robot. Uh, it's such a wild and crazy idea in such a grounded movie, but they somehow present it like they would with Blue Thunder. They give you a crazy idea, but they ground it in reality, and it works. Yeah, yeah Roger Ebert was a big fan of that part. <laughs> <laughs> the, the robot had better acting than Chuck Norris. <laughs> oh, of course, of course. Wood and Plank has better acting. Than Chuck <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well. But the, I, I have I have a book of Roger Ebert reviews that I think it's from '89, and uh, it has a re- his review for Code of Silence. And he loved Code of Silence up until the robot shows up, and he's just like, "Oh God!" Damn it. <laughs> you know but but he really did love uh, he really did love Code of Silence, and he he wished Chuck had made more movies like that. But then he said, "You get to Invasion of the Saints." Yeah, well, he signed he signed that long term contract just like Charles Bronson did, where they really couldn't go to any other studios. They were locked in, and they basically had to take one movie a year. And Cannon wasn't exactly known for good scripts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They, uh, they definitely were not known for that, and they were fucking cutthroat too. You know? Yeah. Like even if they had a good script, they they find out a way to to ruin it. You know, <laughs> by by just being so you know penny pinching. Well, they weren't though. That's the problem. They were not penny pinching from eighty four to eighty, like early eighty seven. And then they looked at the book and like, oh shit! <laughs> and then that's when everything went yeah. wrong because they had no money for promotion, for getting on you know a lot of screens, and the budgets were like, well, we can't have a movie that's more than five million dollars. And then by nineteen ninety, like we can't have a movie that's more than three million dollars. And just uh, mm-hmm. they did it to yeah. themselves. They got greedy. Yeah, they 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 wanted to be. They were a low-budget production studio that wanted to be a big-budget production studio. And it's just like, you could have achieved that if you would have just, you know, focused on getting better scripts. Yeah, or, slow your roll as yeah. you were going bigger. Like, don't go from a $5 million topper to a $15, 25000000 million topper. Right, right. They, they, they blew it by trying to get, like, big stars like Chuck and Bronson, especially Stallone. Oh, that blew them right out of the water. Yeah, like they paid Stallone like an insane amount of money to do over the top, and it's just like, but why? Oh. Why? Where? you could you could have took all that money and focused on on putting it into like Michael Dudikoff, who was a bona fide star. Yeah, like after American Ninja. Come on, twelve million dollars for over the top just for Stallone? That was a stupid yeah. idea. That's that's five or six movies. Right, and you could have used that, and like you know, because you know. Michael Dudikoff was really popular, and you could have focused in on him and 
you know, trying to get him into better movies and stuff, and you would have had an in-house star right there, and you could have been major. Right. No, you wanted Stallone. Oh, they fucked, it, fucked it, up. it all up. Yeah. Fucked it all up. How did we get here? What were we talking about? Oh, Code of Silence. <laughs> uh, and it's all Code of Silence's fault. No, um, <laughs> yeah. our final film is Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. I think the weakest of the quadrilogy. Still a very, very interesting fun ride. But when you get the adrenaline pump from the other three, it's just not the same. Yeah, it, 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 it is definitely like uh, the least of the four movies. But I, I like this one a lot. You know, I, my, my dad is not particularly good. It was good until the fucking kids show up. And yeah, that's when I lose it, dude. I'm sorry, but that's when I, I was like, oh. By the way, we took my sister to this when she was five. She's still traumatized yeah. to this day <laughs> from that kid getting sucked in the sand. Oh, yeah, yeah. That is a, that is a crazy. <laughs> but, uh, but I, you, I, I gotta admit, I, I kind of dig this one, you know. Why are there two I, directors I, I, on this? I'm curious. Do you know? Uh, yes, yes. What happened was that um, George Miller had a producing partner, Byron Kennedy, that he did the, the first two movies with, it, and they, they were really good friends. And what happened was that Byron Kennedy was killed, I believe, in a helicopter crash. Oh my god! Plane crash. He, yeah, but but he 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 died a tragic death. And uh, they were working on doing another Mad Max, and George Miller really lost the passion to do this without his producing partner, Byron Kennedy. And he, you know, he was, he just came up to a compromise. Well, you know, we'll get another guy. He'll handle the dramatic scenes and I'll handle the action scenes, you know, all the stuff with the action. And that's how we'll do this. Like he really, you know, just really the, the, lost the wind underneath his wings, you know, the, the, uh, under his sails, if you will. Yeah. He, he just didn't want to do it after, you know, he lost uh, Byron. And the, the movie is dedicated to him at the end, at the very end, you see for Byron. No. I never, I so never caught that before. That's something kind of ridiculous. I didn't never notice that, but that does make more sense because maybe that's why it's spaced out and they focus more on the characters. I'll give them that. These are three-dimensional yeah. characters, whereas the other movies really don't seem to be interested in who they are beneath the, the basic level. Right, and you know that that's 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 probably one of the things I love about it. Like you know, it gets really into, especially Max. You know, because Max basically becomes like. I know this was a big complaint about Fury Road. It's like, it's not about Mad Max. It's about these other people. And it's like, have you watched any other Mad Max movie? Right. Well, and Max's you know? story is told already. That's I yeah. think that's why this new one is going to be about Furiosa as a prequel. Yeah. Um, because I think there's nothing new to say about Max. Yeah, there, there's, there's not. Max is, like, like you said, Max's story is told. And he's basically... Our, you know, our, our way into this world. He's like, you know, our travel guide into this world. You know, he's he's basically taking us through this. You know, from, you know, situation to situation. And you know, it's the same as here. It's the same as Fury Road. And like, if you watch any other Mad Max movie, you would realize that. So you bitching about the, there's not enough Mad Max. And I I really have no problem with that. But I think. There's a little bit more focus on maybe the humanity of Max. Yeah. Well, and um, the world development what, what, is much bigger. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Also, um, when, it, when it comes to the kids, what I, what I love most about the movie, um, you know, of course, Max is a loner. You know, he's, he's basically grown accustomed to this life, being alone, scavenger or whatever, on this, you know, in this open wasteland. And, like, he meets these kids, and it basically 
you know, becomes like a redemptive story for him. Like uh, toward the end where uh, they're trying to get away because they're trying to get to the, you know, the city portion because they think there's people there waiting. Because, you know, they tell the tale and, you know, the captain. And uh, Max volunteers to like, you know, because you have the like, you know, uh, Tina Turner coming after them with her army. And he, he, you know, he, you know, he basically stays behind to like uh, clear the way for them so they can get away. And then you have that, like, as he's driving by them, he gives them that one last look, like, all right, you know. And then, like, you know, he goes and basically makes way for them, you know, because he knows I don't belong with you. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm too much like these other people. Like, and basically, Tina Turner says that, you know, ain't we a pair? Raggedy man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like, you know, so I love I love the little moments like that. You know? Yeah, you, you see a lot of that in Fury Road, though. Like, his... Yeah. Is Fury Road a different universe? Did we discuss this already? Is it a different universe, or is it between any of these movies? Or after this movie? Yeah, it, it, it's definitely after. It was supposed to be... Like, I remember uh, hearing, uh, reading about the, that George Miller's original idea was this was going, uh, Fury Road was going to be between Mad Max and the Road Warrior, and that um, one of uh, uh, a Morton Joe's, like uh, Nathan Jones, who plays the big son, uh, he, he was, like, he was going, like, he was basically the basis of who uh, Lord Humongous would be. Okay. The Road Warrior. That was the idea. But uh, he said, forget it, and this would be after uh, 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 Thunderdome, Beyond Thunderdome. And that, um, you know, it was going to take place after that. So, you know, there's a comic book that explains. Yeah, I have it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But it's just when you look at how that. old he is in Thunderdome or how old he's supposed to be, it doesn't match up. That's yeah. why I get so confused by it. But maybe we're just supposed to erase that. And he got a haircut. Those shitty fucking hair extensions. <laughs> My God. Thank God. Thankfully, they cut him off halfway through the film. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, could, I could see why people. Yeah, but that Thunderdome sequence, everybody loves the Thunderdome. I'd like to have my own Thunderdome without the killing part. I just like to climb around in that damn thing. Right, right, totally, totally. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's what my father was like. Yeah, that, that part was great. Then it just goes to shit. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know like uh, so I'm like, you know, but I, I I stuck with the movie. Like I, one thing I love about it is there's that scene where, because you know, like. Road Warrior is all about the, the car chases, Mad Max kind of, but this one is basically bereft of all car chases. You know, it's more about like you know hand to hand stuff. And, shit. and like you know, the, when we first see Max again, he basically he turned uh, his 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 car into like a horse and carriage. Uh huh. And that's the and that's the only real time we see Max in a car for like the rest of the movie. And it's just like. I like I like how they did that different because you know we don't see Max in a car until like the climax. So when he gets back into a car, it's like yeah, this is what we're waiting for. You know, Max behind the wheel of a car again, and it gives it like it basically really when he shows up in the car, there's a great hero shot where it closes in on him and it's like yeah, he's driving again. Yeah, I would get hyped at that moment. Yeah, it's it's you know it's funny. I'm just thinking about this. This is kind of an offshoot, but um. It also looks a little more like an MTV video. I kept thinking like Russell Mulcahy's videos, especially the ones that he would do for Duran Duran. And I feel like the look of it, of course it's a bigger budget, that's part of it, but 
It would have been interesting if they had continued Mad Max after this and they handed it over to Russell Mulcahy instead of him doing Highlander. Oh yeah, yeah, that would have been that would have been great because Mulca- Russell Mulcahy was, um, you know, a really fantastic director, you know, especially around that time. You know, uh, and, and he shows what he could have done with the like a Mad Max type movie when he did uh, Resident Evil Extinction. Yeah, it just he and never so, has so, the right script. He never has anything yeah, that matches talent. Right, all he had was Highlander. Yeah, it, which sucks. You know, the I mean, I I I admit that I I, I love have a, a secret like guilty pleasure love for Highlander too, even though I know it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I kind I kind of love it in a strange way, you know. And I, I like uh, what was that movie he did, Resurrection, which was kind of like a yeah, that was not bad. Uh, I remember that the serial killer movie. That was good. He did some good camera tricks on that one and. Uh, of course, the shadow is just the missed opportunity. That was where he was going to go big, and it just didn't connect. Right, right, right. I know. I know. I think where where it kind of blew it for him was when he was fired off of uh, Rambo Three. Yeah. You know. Speaking of that, that, back to Andrew Davis, who was fired off the Running Man, who stars in it. Back to the beginning of this episode, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Full circle. <laughs> uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger actually. I know he said that he actually uh, thought that was a mistake because uh, the, the director they did replace him on Running Man, Paul Michael Glazer, like he thought he was not the right man for the job because he's like, oh, he's a TV director, he directed like a TV movie. Yeah, but Band of the Hand is cool. Oh yeah, yeah. So, but it's weird. Did he? Uh, I forgot he worked with him though. Eventually on what Collateral Damage? Yeah, which was like um, very fucking dull. Like, yeah. <laughs> oh, so those are our films of 1985. Um, going to be taking a break till the end of the year because I work retail, and uh, well, frankly, it's insane from uh, the mid-November to the end of the year. So we'll be back in January with 1986. Rob, thank you very much. Of course, thank you always for having me. I, I really, uh, I really miss. And I'm going to be on your show sometime next year, uh, talking 70s oh, action movies or direct-to-video movies. We don't cover here. I can't wait to talk. About some of these lost gems. Uh, what oh, is the name of this oh, show? Dude. <laughs> oh, dude, I, I cannot wait to have you on the show. Like, dude, like I, I really can't. You know, I mean, it's gonna be great. Like, you know, because uh, we've been talking about, like, you know, we talked about '80s action movies, '90s movies. We talked a few about more recent ones, but it's like I, I really want to get into older ones now. Because I really it, love the older ones too, like the hard, you know, hardcore, yeah, you know, macho '70s movies. So it's like I can't wait to have you on for this stuff there, because you know, I know that's the, like the big thing for for us. TC two thousand is a must. I got I I've never seen it. It's always been on my peripheral. Yeah. I wanted to discuss some of these, like the whole kickboxing directed video market of '88 to like '97. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> oh yeah, that'd be great. That'd be great. So what's the name of the show? Hmm? Uh, of course. It's plug, uh, plug time. Plug, plug. <laughs> oh, my favorite part. Of course, we are the Action Drunkie. Uh, we just released uh, uh, our fifth episode, uh, which we which we discussed uh, one of our personal favorites, Point Break. Um, Point Break is an absolute uh, classic, and you know we just can't get it. It's, it's basically like one of our personal favorites, like you know. Like a, a film that's like sentimental to both me and my co-host Matt. That's like really just important to like our friendship because the things we would watch together as you know we grew up together. Yeah, you know? that Point Break is one for uh, me and my friend uh, Robert. Um, huh? 
Nice. Uh, point Break. It, we had a party. It was Point Break, The Wraith, and Highlander 2. And we watched oh, it for his birthday and stayed up till. <laughs> I think we finished Point Break at like 4 o'clock in the morning <laughs> while everybody else was asleep. We're like, this is the greatest movie ever. Let's watch it again. Oh, yeah, yeah. You got it. But uh, yeah, you know, the, just going through the through the years, the ages, you know, we just sit there and talk about the, you know, whichever action movies that you know, kind of like comes to our mind. You know, uh, we just did a episode four. We did about Broken Path, which is starring Johnny Young Bosch from uh, Power Rangers fame. He played uh, Adam, the second Black Ranger. Huh. I never saw the show. You know, like, yeah. The, yeah, uh, and that was that was great to talk about because we talked about it with um, my buddy uh, Mike from Atkins Undisputed, uh, the most uh, complete Scott Atkins podcast in the world. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, so that was great because that's kind of like a lost action movie. Like, so it was it was really cool to like talk about something like you know that people don't really know about. Yeah, I mean, because, like, this is, like, the mainstream. This is the stuff everybody knows they're comfortable with. But what you're doing is kind of unearthing some of these films that we enjoyed when we were kids or maybe missed. And, uh, I mean, telling people, everybody discovers every single last fucking genre has these hardcore fans, and they're always digging up these movies. But the one genre that's so ignored is action movies. There are so many great ones out there, and nobody ever talks about them because for some reason it just doesn't have the same uh, fan base. Yeah, yeah, and that's 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 one thing I wanted to like, you know, I really wanted to touch upon in in the show was you know give like attention to movies that people like because like if you go into like action movie groups, you know, and I'm in quite a few of them, and you will see that you know certain movies come up and it's like, oh my god, I love that movie, like. Like White Tiger with Gary Daniels. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, like 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 I mentioned this now, and they'll be like, "What the hell is that? I never heard of that." You know, but like you you find you post that in the action movie group, and oh my god, I love this movie. I watched it a hundred times. Right. You, you mentioned Jeff Wincott's and normal people. They're like, "Who?" He mentioned in that group. Like, yeah, of course, Jeff Wincott's awesome. Oh yeah, I'm like yeah, like you know Jeff, you know. People never even heard of Jeff Wincott, but you mentioned it in the group that he's like a god. Yeah. Jeff Wincott. So know? some serious gems in there. Labels that are gone and their catalogs are in oblivion somewhere. Uh, I did, I, it sounds so exciting. I'm almost more excited for your show. I, actually, I'm not going to lie. I'm more excited for your show right now than I am my own. <laughs> no, 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 no. I love, I, love, I love doing this. I love doing this because, you know, it's, you know, just basically, you know, just going through the rounds of like, you know, the decades and just yeah. reminiscing about the the good times of action before uh before uh we got to like uh, the time where Born came out and action movies kind of went to shit. God, shake the camera, shake the camera. I tried watching Tremor, Shrieker Island, and I made it 15 minutes. I said, no, no, stop shaking the oh, camera. That, you know, can you afford to? Can you edit it, please? <laughs> Was it that bad? I, I, well, I also hate John Heater. I cannot stand the way he talks, and he doesn't have any enunciation. He just sounds like he's shocked by everything. Uh, Are you uh, Burt Gummer? That's the whole... And I was like, I'm out. I can't do this. I hate you. Like, that poor guy. Like, he'll never live Napoleon Dynamite. No. Nope. It wasn't a character. That's exactly how he sounds all the time. All right, so that is it for us. Check us out on Facebook under Hit Rewind Podcast. Check him out over on Cinema Drunkie. I can't wait for what movies we'll unearth over there.
Well, I'm not going to be there all the time. Absolutely. I said that as if I was on the mission with you. I'll, I'm going to join on a few missions. Side mission. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, totally. I can't wait to have you. All right, everybody, have a good night. Good night, everybody.